Hello there. My name is Austin Glidden. I'm I'm in such a weird mood. I'm so sorry. Uh, yeah, this is uh, Medium Cool, a movie podcast. I'm your host, Austin Glidden. We are partnered up with The Film Yap. Go check out thefilmyap.com for all things film. They never shut up about movies over there. Go check it out. You can also uh, hang out with us online with social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. It's facebook.com backslash mediumcoolpod. You can go to mediumcoolpod on Instagram. We'll pop up. You can also at mediumcoolpod on Twitter. We'll be there. You can also email us any comments, questions, concerns, feedback, whatever you want at mediumcoolpod at gmail.com. Definitely come hang out with us. We're going to have some really awesome stuff coming up, especially since once Horror Month is over and November begins, you guys will really kind of get a good sense of what our show will be like because these first three episodes are one us trying to get our bearings you know trying to kind of figure out how we want to time these things out and stuff and all of our episodes uh well both of them and the bonus content have went over and we're totally happy and fine with that but we're really trying to find our bearings so stick with us bear with us hang out with us in november let's see what we have to offer we're going to be reviewing movies um, new and old. We'll have some more lists for you guys. We'll be uh, asking for your opinions on what we should be covering and giving you guys polls, all kinds of awesome stuff. So please go follow us on social media so that you can get notified when we are doing new things. Also, please, wherever you are, iTunes, Spotify, uh, Google Podcasts, wherever you are listening to this, please subscribe or follow. Uh, That will really help us out so that we can reach more people, will be more easily searchable. All of those stupid, you know, logistical things or whatever term you want to use. The point is, it does help us out and we would really appreciate it. Our goal is to be able to reach more people so we can get more awesome people on our show and, uh, yeah, really help them out as well as them helping us out. All of that said, today we have a really awesome episode for you. I have the filmmakers, the director and editor for the awesome documentary about the legendary hardcore band Bane, and that documentary is called Holding These Moments. It came out last Tuesday on October 13th, and now uh, I'm going to let you hear my conversation with those filmmakers, and in a moment I'll let them introduce themselves, but after that, Joe and I come back and talk about our 6 through 10 on our top 15 favorite horror movies. Now, next week, we're going to give our one through five. So our top five, it's going to be awesome. Last episode, if you haven't listened to it, we gave our 11 through 15. So this is the middle section, and there are some awesome choices there. So please, bear with us, sit back, relax. I hope you enjoy this interview and Joe and I's top 15 favorite horror movies of all time lists. Let's let's kick it. Let's do it. I am the editor of Holding These Moments. Um, yeah, I've been an editor for, what year is it? 2020? Almost 25 years now. So, because I started in high school and then just kind of carried it on through here. Uh, my name is Dan Ellswick. I directed the film. Um, I live in Los Angeles and I work in mostly like competition um, reality TV style stuff like America's Got Talent and like cooking competition shows, stuff like that. Bane has sort of always been a band that kind of walked between the raindrops and caught the lucky breaks. When we started, we were kind of like, it'd be crazy if this band lasted like five years. And we formed a bond that will always exist. 
Bane was always a band to me that just was willing to take risks and do things that other bands either didn't have the courage to do or just maybe didn't even have the creativity to do. The whole crowd would be facing the band, finger pointing, stage diving, singing along, and you could see that there was like a unity, there was cohesion, there was like band and crowd, it was all the same. That's when I knew, you know, this, it's different. Bane has been my life for 21 years. It's the only constant that I've had. Years ago, when we said, oh, we'll be done approximately this time, it seemed forever away. It's in three years. That's a long time. We're here. We wanted to write our own ending, going everywhere in the world that we wanted to go, whatever we wanted to do. At the end of the day, we were a hardcore band who got on stage and tried to give it our all to pay tribute to the spirit of the bands that made us want to be in bands. I wish we wrote a longer story for an ending, because uh, this ending sucks. Yeah, I mean, you guys had a skeleton crew from what it looks like on the, the website. Did you? Yeah. I mean, did you guys really only have four? Like, it was just pretty much you two and then Greg... And, mm-hmm. uh, Charles, I, Charles, thank you. Charles. Yeah. yeah, it was, it was Ricky and I from the start and we started realizing that we needed help probably at least like six months to a year in that, you know, cause me never doing anything like this before on my own, you know, like I didn't really know what I was getting myself into. Um, yeah. and I, unfortunately for Ricky, I, I dragged him into it without knowing as well. And, uh, um, but you know, we, we stood the test of time and we, (laughs) we weathered the storm. So they say, how long was, how long was filming? I mean, how long did you guys go? We'll get into more of these details later, but I'm just curious. Um, well, basically we, we filmed in different sections. Like, Every summer, I would go out east to the East Coast, um, and Ricky wasn't in living in wasn't living in Germany yet, so he was meeting me on the East Coast and helping me with interviews and shooting some B roll with me and stuff like that. So sporadically throughout that four years, I would say um, maybe three years, because I think at the three year mark, Ricky told me I needed to stop filming things because he was tired of adding more and more stuff (laughs) to it. So, um, I think around the three year mark, we stopped filming, but it was, it was sporadically, but still an insane amount of content. Oh, I bet. Yeah. I mean, documentaries are crazy because it's like, we're going to film as much as we can and we'll put it together in editing. You know what I mean? Like, like how Mm -hmm. much you can plan kind of almost only so much depending on what you're, what you're doing. So um, I guess where I, I would like to start, though, thank you for introducing yourselves, and I, I want to talk a little bit about, you know, which came first, hardcore or filmmaking for each of you guys. Are you guys hardcore fans? You, like, is that your thing? Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. yeah. I, I grew up one, well, let's see, I'm 43 now, and so I grew up within the punk rock community in Chicago, and then kind of like you, Austin, I didn't get into hardcore until maybe my senior year of high school, which is 95. Um, and then I just kind of like fell in love with it, you know, definitely jumped in head first and stuff like that, both feet. And, uh, you know, and then became like a scene stir. So I was going to all of the Chicago shows and stuff like that. I had a band, 
<clears throat> did all that stuff. And, you know, still, I still love hardcore, still love, mostly listen to hardcore loud stuff. Um, and actually I was able to see Bane at, in their first show, uh, on the first tour with saves a day really? in Chicago in 1998. So yeah, it was, uh, it was pretty awesome. But yeah, so I've been a fan of hardcore and, uh, you know, across within hardcore, the genres within hardcore for a long, long time and stuff like that. So, so yeah, so hardcore was definitely something that I was into as well as like, I don't know when you're like a punk kid, at least from our scene in Chicago and for where I grew up, like we were watching tons of movies anyway, along the stuff. So like obviously mostly horror movies, comedies, anything documentary and stuff. And just me coming up as, you know, start starting editing in high school and stuff like that are, it was already kind of like, I don't want to say in my blood, but I was already exposed to it where I was like, I could probably do something like this and, and get into it. But yeah. So for me, it was like hardcore, at least music and films kind of like were parallel. Also, I skateboarded at the time too. So it was like <laughs> I had a camera yeah. and I wanted to shoot my friends and, you know, start, that's what I started editing was music, music videos of bands as well as, um, like my friend skateboarding. So yeah. get a ton of skateboarding footage, you know, throw a terror song over it and you have yourself like a little promo video. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, a lot of, well, a lot of my older videos aren't online anymore, but I still have a bunch of skateboard videos on my Vimeo and stuff that you can watch from, you know, 10, 15 years ago. So yeah, definitely something that you don't ever outgrow in my opinion. Yeah. So. Yeah. And Dan, what about you? Like hardcore first? Yeah. For sure. Um, I went to my first hardcore show in Denver, Colorado in 1996. It was Sick of It All, Good Riddance, and Ensign. And from that point on, I was hooked. Like I, that, that was like the beginning of something that I would like to where I would actually find out who I was and, you know, figure out kind of like, the person that I wanted to be. Cause that's when I found straight edge. That's when I found like, you know, that's what, that's when I found. Like, I just feel like I found like my family outside of my, you know, blood family. Yeah. Um, and then I started, my parents got me a video camera, like a little, like a little handy cam thing. And, uh, I just started taking it to shows and filming shows and, um, my first Bane show was actually, I think, 99. And it was Grade, Adamantium, and Bane, and a few few other bands. Maybe Death by Stereo? Um, I'm not sure, but it was, it was an awesome show. Yeah, I, I actually never... I unfortunately had to live vicariously through your documentary because I, I never <coughs> had the opportunity... I probably had the opportunity, but I never, you know, uh, was able to see Bane live, which is kind of something that will now haunt me, <laughs> you know? um, because I picked I picked hardcore back up after a hiatus in 2016. I was in a band until 2018 or 19, um, and I started listening to all these bands, like all these old bands I had listened to before, but kind of stopped and all this. And Bane was one of those bands that really captured me, um, especially when Don't Wait Up came out and I hadn't heard that record yet. So I was just like killing that record, you know, just over and over. And they were really influential on that as well. And unfortunately I never got to see them, which is kind of a bummer. Um, but, uh, yeah, they did the, uh, team Skylar stuff as well, which is mm -hmm. out of Indianapolis. And I've known a lot of shows that happened there. 
and things. So that's pretty cool. But tell me this though. So you guys, you guys bring up a, a really important thing, uh, particularly you, Dan said, uh, that this was like a family away from your family, you know? And I think the thing for people that might be listening that don't li- listen to hardcore or aren't a part of that scene, I mean, that's really what it becomes, isn't it? I mean, it's it's really this kind of deep-rooted, um, I mean, family. I, that's really the only way I know how to put it as well. Um, and, and I felt the same way. That was my home away from home was any venue where there was a hardcore show going on. You know what I mean? And tell me, yep. I guess, with that, I mean... How did you guys even get into hardcore? Ricardo, you mentioned being a skateboarder and kind of being into punk and getting into that. Um, yeah. But how did you actually get into hardcore? Like, what brought you in? Was it siblings, friends? You know, what what was it? Uh, friends. Um, uh, let's see. Like, from the beginning, my older brother, he got me into punk rock and stuff like that. And then I had friends that were listening to it. And then by the time I got introduced to hardcore was kids that were a year older than me that had graduated before me and were like, Hey, you know, I'm going to make somebody literally was like, I'm going to make you a cassette tape. And I gave them a B 52s tape that I had that I didn't listen to. And they just like <laughs> taped over it with a whole bunch of like old stuff. And I was like, this is awesome. So that introduced me like Snapcase and chokehold and burn and like all these other bands that I had never even been exposed to. Cause I think at, at that time, maybe the most hardcore that I had listened to was maybe like sick of it all or and just like in passing and, or maybe mm-hmm. even um, like, like seven seconds and stuff like that, which is still like kind of grounded in punk. So it wasn't like anything as heavy as what I got inter- introduced to. And like, I think my, like what I would call my very first um, hardcore show that was like local, like hardcore show was seeing race trader and Joan of Arc and like Rye Coalition at like a, a an anarchy, anarchy, like Autonomous Zone was the name of it. It was like an anarchy bookstore, like downtown. And that was when, I don't know how familiar you are with Race Trader or what they used to be like, but they were just like a grindcore band that would play like 20 second songs. Yeah. And then the Manny singer would just talk for like 20 minutes in between each song. So it was way different than if you've ever heard them lately, which they became more refined and they became more like a, a metal core, a metal metal core band and stuff like that. So, so yeah, I don't know. I totally lost my train of thought. So I don't even know what the question was, but yeah, <laughs> no, it's okay. No, I mean, you pretty much answered it and I'll move on to Dan. I mean, yeah. when, when, what brought you into it, man? Um, well, it's interesting because I always hung out with the skateboarders in high school. Like I, I never skateboarded myself. Um, I was the guy with the camera that was always filming them and, it was never good, but, um, (laughs) you know, we always had fun. Um, but you know, through like fat records and like epitaph records and like stuff like that through strung out Pennywise, you know, I got more into like the skate punk style stuff. Um, 88 fingers, Louie Chicago represent right there. Um, (laughs) stuff like that. But then I started hanging out with, um, this kid, Jordan, who went, I went to high school with who had like the gorilla biscuit albums and like, you know, instead, and you know, all these old, like youth crew bands that was like, I was like, wow, this is like kind of like punk, but way cooler, you know? (laughs) And, uh, I started like, you know, finding more and more and more of those bands, just like through buying CDs and seeing the bands that they would think, you know, like, um, buying those albums and then you know it just kind of it was a downward spiral from there just 
kept finding different different styles of hardcore and different yeah, yeah. you know everything and like ricky mentioned like Snapcase and strife and you know all those bands trial like all those bands started like i started incorporating into everything and yeah sure. just it, fell in love isn't that such an amazing pastime now looking at the thanks in the CD, I mean, we all can relate to this on this call right now because that's definitely yeah. how I feel. And then uh, uh, a yes or no is fine, but did you guys ever play music? Like, were you guys ever in bands or? Yeah, yeah, that we could play. We were both the uh, quote unquote singers. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, like my my goal was always I want to be in someone's thanks. You know what I mean? Like that was like like I found all these bands, so it's like now I want to be that. I remember only one time in my life do I remember ever having that happen. Um, and I don't know if you're familiar with the band Kingston Falls, who was on Facebook or Facebook Face Down Records, but they uh, we were like really good friends with them, and they thanked us, and I just like cherished that CD. Like I wanted to frame it because it was it meant something, right? Like that was a thing. Yeah. Um, but yeah, uh, you know. All of, I guess what I'm going to get at here is is hardcore was a huge part of our lives. Uh, we went to plenty of shows, and I love this about you guys, but at what point did filmmaking or video production come into your life? You know, I, I actually used to be a videographer, not nearly as good as you, Dan, and I could never edit like you, Ricardo, but, you know, um, but I did the same thing. I actually uh, did a lot of videography. So when did you guys get into it? And yeah. Um, um, Dan, you go first. Okay. Um, <laughs> I did, I was dating a girl in Las Vegas and I went out to visit her. My friend Paul, who was in a band called Ignite the Will from Iowa, he was living out there at the time and was a production assistant on the VMAs, the Video Music Awards for MTV. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I was in town and he's like, Hey, you want to, you want to work? And I was like, yeah, sure. And it was more than I made it my job in Denver. So I was like, yeah, let's, I'll do that. And I fell in love with it. And then I ended up doing a tour with throwdown for probably um, five or six weeks and came back to Las Vegas. And there was a three month long show that Paul was working on. And Paul kind of took me in. So as a production assistant on that, everybody there lived in Los Angeles and were just like, Hey man, you want to, if you want to move out to LA, we'll give you work. And that's just kind of how it all started. You know, like I, yeah. I went to LA and I'm not even to this day and no offense to the people that live here. Cause there's amazing people who live here, but I'm still not really a huge fan of the city of Los Angeles, mm -hmm. but um, I'm very grateful and thankful that I moved here because it's actually, it's, it gave me a career. It made me grow, grow up, you know? Um, and now I'm making documentaries with one of my best friends, you know? Yeah. So it's like, it's, it's pretty, it's pretty cool. Like how it all, it all kind of worked out. Yeah. You're not alone. Uh, I studied film in school and most of the production guys, I was more of like the critic scholar guy, but most of the production guys moved to Los Angeles and I don't know a single one of them that like it. <laughs> and it's nothing, <laughs> but it's not against the city, right? Like they actually like LA 
But the living there, they just don't, it's just not exactly, they wouldn't choose it, but it's where their career is, you know? And yeah. I totally get it, man. Totally, totally get it. Uh, what about you, Ricardo? Um, I have an interesting story, I guess. So when I was in high school, I took this class called Radio TV Arts, which was like, learn how to do radio and learn how to do TV. Um, and one of the teachers at the time was a um, was this dude who was basically doing his graduate work, and he was teaching the TV portion of it. And he also ran the local access channel in the neighboring suburb. Um, and he was he had created like a program there for people, for kids and stuff like that. And so he had this idea to like do a, essentially a music video show, which is what he was doing anyway, but something that was a little bit more mature rather than just like little kids being like, here's this green day video, like something that was more like, okay, we're going to make videos of our own, like little documentaries and stuff like that. And so at the time he was like, I like, I like you because you're a good kid, but also you have the image that I want for this. Cause he wanted it to be more like underground so like punk and whatever. And so basically he's like, you should be the, the host of this show. And so he enlisted me and another kid at the time who ended up flaking out. And so another friend of mine came in and basically from like 94 to like 2008, I essentially had my own like TV show where like I was producing and editing and shooting stuff. And I mean, you've been to Chicago, Austin. So, you know, yeah. the Metro right? Oh yeah. So we had a working relationship with the Metro, which was like one of the bit, not the bigger venues, but probably one of the more well-known venues in Chicago. Oh yeah. Um, right across so from Wrigley had, Field, right? Exactly. Just yeah. down, actually just down the street from Wrigley Field, um, and stuff. And so we had created, um, we had a relationship with them where usually if you shot there, you had to pay them like a thousand dollars. But for whatever reason, the guy who owned the place, um, was like, yeah, just give us credit in your credit list and stuff like that. So with that, we had basically, they're like, yeah, if you want to shoot any videos of any bands or interview any bands, just let us know. We'll put you on the guest list and we'll do whatever you want. So because of that, I was able to like, you know, be ba backstage and see like sick of it all, like any of those victory records, like tours with like strife and Snapcase and all those people and anything else that came through, like across the, the board. So like anything punk that you can think of, anything ska, anything hip hop for the most part, mostly punk and, and, and hardcore and stuff like that. But we were able to videotape it like Buddha Glow Skulls, the specials, um, a lot of like whatever. So that's kind of how I cut my teeth in editing was not only cutting it with music video or like music videos from that, like multi-camera shoots, but also with, um, you know, skateboard videos from my friends and stuff. And so I was doing that as I was going to college and, when I was in college, I was like, I'm going to be a 3D artist. You know, I'm going to do 3D animation, which didn't pan out at all. And I was already working as a video editor, so I just kind of kept with it. So I actually never went to film school, and which was interesting because my mentor, who ended up passing away, unfortunately, he he was like the documentary guy. So everything. So that's what my perspective. So it kind of like came full circle in a way, like doing this documentary with Dan. Um, and I had worked on a documentary previous to the one that Dan and I worked on and stuff. So I kind of had a little bit more of an idea of how this was going to go and stuff. But up until like after that, then it was just like, okay, I'm just anything. I just be kind of became a hired gun eventually, but I worked in a lot of niche environments. So, but always was in love with editing and always was in love with film and stuff like that. So, you know, that's kind of how I started and that's got, what got me here today. Yeah. 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 I actually lived in Chicago for a year, but in the suburbs that we were in, um, Mount prospect, 
over mm-hmm. by like Arlington Heights and all those areas. Yep. But we would always yeah. we would take the train in and we would uh, get over to the metro for different shows. I mean, I was with people. We saw like Coheed and Cambria. Like <laughs> we saw bands like yeah. that there, you know. Um, but that place rules, man. I, I really dig that. And that's like that is a a, a gift, a a treasure to get a venue of that size to be like oh yeah just give us a writing credit and you can do anything you want i mean that's that's tough yeah. dude and that's awesome oh yeah sure i mean we I, I, I then we were so young we didn't even realize it and looking back now it's just like man you know i don't even know where i would be if we didn't have that or like how it, we wouldn't have been able to do the things that we did without you know the blessing of joel shanahan and the metro and stuff so yeah yeah it's very cool. Yeah, that's awesome. I, I got to go back to one thing real quick uh, with Dan. Uh, you said you went on tour with Throwdown, and you filmed mm-hmm. stuff on their tour. Oh wait, what, what did you do on their tour again? No, I actually. It's funny because I'm not a drummer. I've never drummed in my life, and I ended up being a drum tech for Ben Duso, their drummer, because um, his drum tech ended up dropping off the tour the day before. Oh. And they needed somebody quick. And Paul was tour managing. So Paul called me. He's like, hey, dude, Ben needs a drum tech. I know you're not a drummer, but are you down to go? And I was like, fuck yeah, I'm down to go. So <laughs> here we are. Dude, that's that's crazy. You get crash courses in the van. All right, this is how you tighten it. <laughs> well, basically, like me and Ben would like the first show that I, I met up with them in Houston and the first show, like we went through and we took a Sharpie and we highlighted every single, like the levels of all the stands and like all this stuff. And Ben so I don't know if you know who he is, but he is literally one of the most lovely human beings on this entire planet. That's awesome. And he, everything was great until the Minneapolis show. And I think his symbol was off like maybe a 16th of an inch and it messed him up. And that was the first time that he ever looked at me and he was just like, what the, you know? And <laughs> I mean, daggers while he's playing staring yeah, daggers, but it's funny because before that there was never an issue. And that was four weeks into the tour. And then that one day, you know, he wasn't, he wasn't stoked on it, but <laughs> I, love, I love I love Ben to death. No, but that that's all. I mean, just you know, some some of these names. I I always I often wonder, you know, like with the way that the scene and the way that music is spread now, it's like how many people remember or know Throwdown or like you know all these awesome bands that we had. I've always put like for example, Bane. I've always put on a level of like terror. Like these guys that they're always gonna have people out at a show. You know what I mean? And they're and they're like tried and true hardcore community bands, you know, but they're not going to be under oath. You get what I mean? Like they're not going to be this band. And, um, but I find that bands on that level always have a story like in holding these moments, like that story of fans crying at the last show or, you know, there's, there's something so much, um, What's the word I want to use? There's something so much like closer and more close knit in those groups. Mm-hmm. Um, and and speaking to that, I guess I mean, like, how did holding these moments even come to be, and how did you both get involved? Um, Aaron Dahlbeck, the guitar player from Bane, 
he had told me that they were pretty confident that they were going to be ending the band. Um, they were going to do a few final tours across the world, release a new final album. Um, and one, one day I woke up and I literally was just like, I need to do a documentary about Bane. And it, it was just really interesting how it just kind of came to me overnight. And so I, I called Aaron and I was just like, how would you feel about me filming your final tour in the U S and he's like, you know, I'm down, but I have to ask everybody else. So a few weeks go by, um, Aaron, I text Aaron again and I'm like, Hey, did you ask anybody? And he's like, he's like, yeah, he's like, it's looking good, but I'll, I'll let you know. And then it's like two weeks until the final show, the final tour starts, <laughs> oh, you God. know? Yeah. And I'm like, all right, well, I'm just going to start buying camera gear and I'm just going to figure it out. And like three days before he finally was just like, yeah, let's do it. He's like, everybody's on board. <laughs> and so I drove from LA to Denver cause I wanted Denver to be my first, my first show of that final tour. Cause that's where I grew up. And, you know, I knew a lot of my old friends were going to be there. So it's going to be just a giant family reunion. And, uh, so I did that. And then, you know, Ricky, Ricky helped me film the first show. Um, and then he helped me film in Chicago as well. Like he flew out to Chicago and filmed there. And, um, but I think pretty early on, it, it was originally just going to be a final tour and a final show um, documentary. And that's kind of how I pitched to Ricky because that's what I thought it was going to be. And then it just, <laughs> just yeah, kind of yeah. morphed, morphed into this crazy shit, you know? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we were – he definitely was – I can recall be sitting in my living room because then I lived in Denver for about 10 years before – moving out of Denver, um, Dan being like, yo, this is on the DL, but Bane is going to break up, blah, blah, Do you want to, I'm going to film this. Do you want to edit it? And I was like, sure. Not thinking that it was going to happen. <laughs> Just because, you know, <laughs> yeah. that's like, I mean, doing a final tour and, you know, for one person or just in general, that's like a kind of a huge thing. Um, and so I was like, yeah, I'll do it. <laughs> and then, obviously here we are today. So yeah, but it was, I don't know. It was there. Was, at that point it was just like, I'm going to do this and do you want to help me? And I was like, sure, yeah. I'll help you. Of course I will. You know, and, I want to do cool shit and that sounds like cool shit. It is cool mm -hmm. shit. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you guys, you guys, uh, uh, crowdfunded this to an extent, I believe. Am I correct in thinking that? A little bit. It was, it was, it was crowdfunded. I mean, that, that's kind of a nightmare in itself. Um, just everything that we went through, you know, like people, people donated money and it's like, we wanted to be able to release incentive incentives for that. Yeah. And the incentive just became a nightmare and all this stuff. So I have a, I have a negative thought when it comes to the crowdfunding, not towards the people that donated because they, they helped out more than they will ever know, but more towards like my side of it where I just wasn't as organized as I should have been you know, taking care of everything. And, um, through this documentary, I found out my strengths and I found out my weaknesses, you know, like I, 
I, I definitely know things that I need to do better in the future um, because of this documentary. So for that, I'm truly grateful, you know, yeah. and I can give great advice to people if they want to, if they want to shoot a documentary, I can tell them the things to look out for, the things to plan for, you know, and I'm sure on the next one, I'll still mess up a lot of things, but you know, it's, it's all about learning and growing and, you know, um, luckily we, we did a documentary about a band that a lot of people care about and the response to us doing this has been amazing. Like people have reached out and offered help in millions of ways. Like, like, yeah, the, everything involved was, has been a roller coaster, but has been awesome, you know? Yeah. But the, the crowdfunding part though, you also got footage from fans and stuff, correct? Am I, am I wrong in thinking that as well? No, no you're right. Not, we got the crowdfunding. Well, I mean, oh. the crowdfunding for incentives for like money was one thing, but then also we tapped into the crowd or the community, the Bain community for pictures and video and stuff like that. So yes, yeah, so we had money, and then we also had um, a lot of what you see. Um, I mean, there's a good portion of it. I would say maybe half, maybe a little bit less than half, is from fans and friends and stuff like that, rather than just from the members of the band themselves and stuff like that. So that was, uh, that was, there was a lot of people <laughs> that sent yeah. us stuff and we couldn't use all of it because either the quality was too poor or because, um, you know, we would have had a, a seven hour documentary, which nobody wants to watch. Well, I don't know about that, but not everybody <laughs> wants to watch yeah. seven hour long documentary with the pictures. Yeah. I mean that, that footage, yeah. all of that footage and all of those pictures and all of that just, I mean, I think really, uh, provided a visual history of, of this band. And, uh, when I was, uh, cause again, like Ricardo, you and I just touched base like two days ago or something, you know, like, mm -hmm. so I didn't have a whole lot of time to really dig into a lot of the, uh, kind of nuts and bolts that might be out there in terms of how this was made. But, um, that was one thing I did read. And I think that's so cool that the community came together to give people, not only people in the community, uh, and people like me who are fans of Bane but may not have been around at that time to be able to see those shows, to be able to see those moments, but also, you know, uh, like people who don't even like, or not that don't like Bane, I don't mean that, but I mean people that might not know who they are or uh, maybe newer mm -hmm. people that are into that kind of music but maybe they're not as familiar with that band. If they were to see this, I mean, they get, I think this is a good visual history of this band. Um and I think you guys did a killer job in terms of, uh, I mean, tackling the heart of the band. And, and to explain what I mean by that, I'll say I played music for 20 plus years off and on, you know, and my last show was, I think, December 10th, 2018. And it was like two weeks after my mom had died and we were playing in some basement in Muncie, Indiana in front of 15 people. You know, mm -hmm. it was like cold. It's like snows on the ground. And I remember we were supposed to have some big banger for me to go off on, like 20 years doing mm -hmm. this. And we're going to get a bunch of our friends that are bigger bands and we're going to throw a banger. And we decided like we played the show and then that got canceled. And the last show I have in my mind is this like little basement show in front of 15 people. We didn't even like do that great. I remember the mic was duct taped to the stand. So I had to like run around with a stand because I was the vocalist. And, uh, 
it kind of like almost haunts me because it's like, oh, but I could do one more. Like if I could get one mm-hmm. more show, like it's so hard to get out of it. And I can't even imagine yeah. someone like Bane who did this for, what was it, 25 years? Well, not at that point. It's been 20. 25 years, but like 20 plus years. 20. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And 20 and some change and they hang up those boots voluntarily. I mean, that's that's tough. And I, I think that's kind of the crux of what I got out of the documentary um, is watching these people like who love the music and who build this organic following and start doing stuff with their passion. And then in the end, you know, life kind of catches up with some and it becomes a thing of, hey, if we can't do this the way that we're doing it now, let's not do it at all and hang up their boots. And I just... I mean, I cried during this documentary. <laughs> like, this was like a powerful thing for me. And I don't know if that will have the same effect on other people. But as a musician, mm-hmm. I feel that. Like, I'm watching it and I'm just like, man, this is so hard for me to watch. Because, like, on a much less lesser level, I was there. Like, I yeah. did that. I hung the boots up voluntarily because I'm, you know, moved to where I live now. And I'm married and I have my life here. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so you know, for me and for any fans of of hardcore or Bane or any musician in general, I would say, you know, I'm gonna really be pushing this on them uh, to check this out. And and are you guys happy with the final product? Like, how do you guys feel about it? Watching it back now, Ricardo, you may have a different feeling because you've probably seen it four thousand <laughs> times. Yeah, you I know? have seen it many times. I get um, excited, but I mean, that's how you know. When you can start reciting your own documentary to people, <laughs> and then <laughs> then it's either a problem or the funniest thing ever. But, yeah. but how, Dan, you start. Like, how how do you feel about your first documentary, your first feature? How do you feel about that? Um, to be quite honest with you, I am very much in love with it. Like, I it came out. I know this is going to seem drastic, but a million times better than I ever expected it to. And that's, that's not like, basically I feel like I gave Ricky towards the beginning, I gave him some mediocre footage to work with and he polished the shit out of that turd, you know, towards the end, <laughs> everything started getting a little bit better. Cause I started actually catching a groove and stuff like that. But, um, I, I think between Ricky and I, I think we tell, we tell a story, um, through camera and through the edit. Um, I, th- I think we, we tell a true story, you know, and we, we wanted it to be emotional. We wanted it to have funny parts. We wanted it to, to, we wanted to draw in more than just hardcore kids, you know, like we want, anybody to watch this and like, Oh shit. I wish I could have been part of that or damn, I can relate to that, that feeling, you know, like this, this was more than just a hardcore documentary for us. Like we, we really, we really, we really wanted to reach outside. And, and I, I honestly think that, me and Ricky and Charles and Greg, I think we, I think we created something really beautiful. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree. And, and the relatable aspect, I think 
anybody who's done anything, you know, I've seen documentaries and stuff on professional wrestlers and they wrestle into their fifties or they wrestle, you know, maybe into their late thirties or forties and they hang it up themselves, but then they always have that itch to get back, but it's never quite the same. I mean, you know, it could be professional wrestlers, musicians, filmmakers, actors, like it could be anything that, you know, it's not a story specific to the hardcore scene, though it also simultaneously is, but it's not exclusive to that. And, and, uh, yeah, kudos. I, I 100% agree with you on that. Um, Ricardo, having seen it 4,000 times, <laughs> you know, how do you feel about it now? I mean, it's definitely, you know, when kind of when Dan was talking about earlier that this was just going to be a tour video and then somebody had the idea of like, well, let's make this a little bit bigger than that. And especially because Dan interviewed like a hundred people. So it's like, okay, what are we going to do with all this footage? And, where's the story in this? And, um, that's kind of where it really took off. And I think what we've done, um, and in the end and having watched it 4,000 times, it kind of, it's, and I'm glad that you kind of picked up on that. Cause you know, when you see something for so long and you keep watching it and watching it, then you can kind of, in a way, fill in those gaps. You so you kind of gaps. know yeah. the story that you're trying to tell. And so that was kind of the issue. It's like, okay, when we were like, cause I think the first edit was definitely over three, about three hours long. And so it's like, okay, when we start cutting this thing down to be something a little bit more, you know, easy for people to watch, like, are we going to be conveying the story and the message that we want, you know, without, you know, in a way that they're going to know it, even though we cut out these other things that, that we know about and stuff. So, and I think that we were, we were able to do that. I mean, you know, being an artist and being hard on myself and just the things that I want to do. And looking at it there, you know, there's definitely some things that I'd be like, oh, well, you know, I wish we could have done this different or, or whatever. But, you know, considering everything that we had uh, and and did kind of, Yeah. And had I mean, we did the thing, like you said, where it was just like we're going to shoot a documentary and kind of started with one idea and had a whole bunch of questions. And then it turned left and we're like, OK, now we got to scramble and be like then after that, it was like, OK, these people gave us these answers. So let's start following that storyline and see if we can do it. Um, and initially it was just going to kind of be, I mean, we kind of had the idea that, well, at least I had the idea, like I wanted it to be like two things, like two stories kind of like running parallel, which was like the history of the band, which if you weren't a hardcore kid or weren't an artist or anything like that, just knowing how that worked out. Um, and then kind of like obviously the final tour. So, which I think that we ended up doing like, cause initially it was just going to be all chronological which was, would have been like, it would have turned out much. I'm glad that we did it this way and it ended up working out because then it would have just been, here's all the records and then here's the final tour. But because we put it together, like overlapped it, it became a little bit more interesting and stuff. Well, um, so go on. Well, I was just going to say, uh, did you ever see by chance the Roger Ebert documentary Life Itself? No, not I, yet. I there, have. There's a, it, it's, I think it's really phenomenal, but just to your point, like, uh, you guys don't do it the same, but in life itself, it starts by telling his history, but it shows him because he was still alive when it was being filmed. Um, and he'd already had all of his surgeries and he couldn't speak anymore. And and it was, you know, it was you could have done a chronological thing that ended with him, you know, basically bedridden, you know, in a hospital. Um, but them going back and forth, the juxtaposition of this very vocal, very kind of vibrant film critic, you know, doing all these things, you know, full of piss and vinegar, right? Like this guy. Yeah, yeah. And then cutting to him, you know, drinking through a straw, essentially, or however he was, you know, taking in things. And, I mean, I, just, it tells a different story. 
right? And there's a different emotion to it. And I think had you guys done that chronologically, I agree with you, you know, it would have still been an awesome document. Um, but I think some of that emotion may have been lost. I, I think that was an absolutely yeah. great choice. Yes. Yeah. Well, thank you very much. Yeah, I think that it, it, came, it conveyed the story of it and it made it a little bit more intimate and kind of connected you, like hooked you in a little bit more so that you start, re- reveals like the character of these guys and what they've kind of gone through as well as like, okay, you know, the beginnings as well as kind of like the ending as you're watching it um, kind of like wrap up in itself. So, yeah. yeah. So I think that, you know, after watching it more and more and even now, cause you know, cause I think I've watched it in the past couple of weeks, a couple of times for a proofing and stuff like that. It's still like, you know, you know, I can be like, okay, I think we, we this is good. You know, even people telling me that like, you know, from the, the Bane guys and from yourself and other people who are, are like really into it, which feels good. But now it's kind of like, okay, I believe what you're telling me that this is a good documentary so that it, it makes me feel good. You know, I mean, we're excited for this to finally, finally come out and, you know, kind of just the, uh, just uh, the confirmation that, this kind of like was a success at least the band's eyes which is good enough for me and stuff like that and hopefully you know that's what the nervous part for me is about is that the people that have been waiting so long to see it are going to enjoy it as much as they do as well as we do yeah and and speaking on that before because i do want to talk to you about uh one other thing before we kind of start to wrap this up here um but i want you guys to plug it real quick tell us uh you know uh, by the time this airs uh it will be out where can they find it? Where can they get it? You know, uh, tell the people how they can watch it. Uh, so by the time this airs, we will have already, well, it'll be like on just about like all the streaming services aside from Netflix. So you'll be able to get it on Amazon, iTunes, Apple TV, Google Play, Xbox, Vudu, Vibiquity, Dish, Tesla, and In Demand. Um, and that's just the digital stuff yeah. as well as if you want to get a physical version, which, um, we decided not to do a DVD or any kind of any disc format. We ended up doing it on a USB, which we made look like a VHS, which a lot of people think that this is on VHS, but I'm going to tell you right now, it's not on VHS. <laughs> um, so, uh, if you want to get those physical copies, which by then you should just be able to buy, you can go to um, MerchNow, htm.merchnow.com to get a physical copy. You can also go to RevHQ.com and search Holding These Moments and get a physical copy. If you're in Europe, there is a, uh, a store out of Berlin, Berlin. Cortex, Cortex Records. They will be selling stuff, so um, physical copies as well. Um, so, yeah, there's a, a lot of places that uh, definitely anybody should be able to get it anywhere. Yep. Um, so, yeah, it's going to be all over the place. Yep, and if you want to get the VHS, no, I'm just kidding. Yeah. <laughs> you know, VHS, cassettes came back. Cassettes they, came back. People. So, you know, maybe VHS yeah. will. Um, you know, this with this being uh, Medium Cool, a movie podcast, you know, we've been talking a lot about music and we've been talking about the making of the documentary. I just want to take a moment. You know, right now we're in the middle of what we're calling Horror Month, which is, you know, about as, uh, you know, creative as, you know, something not creative. But, uh, you, know, um, you know, I was just curious, like, what kind of movies were you guys into? I mean, I'm assuming beyond skateboarding and making these cool videos, you know, like little promo videos of people skateboarding and adding music to it and editing and all that stuff. I mean, what do you guys like to watch? 
And and furthermore, you know, how much of that is horror? Dan? I'm I'm not a horror fan. Um I I've tried. I've tried really hard <laughs> to to love it because I everybody around me loves horror and I I don't get it. But um <laughs> but come on, I, Dan, I like, there, there has to be like there has comedy. to be one, right? There has well, to be no, one. I don't, okay. I don't <laughs> I don't know if this is considered either of these is considered horror, but Army of Darkness, I'm a huge fan of, and Evil Dead 2. Um besides that, I mean, I like I like the new It movie. I think that's pretty cool. Um <laughs> <laughs> How much yeah, of it though? I, I mean, how much of it is like do you, do you get caught up in the production? of it at all like when you see stuff is any of it kind of like a, oh that's like a cool shot thing or do you really just let it oh, wash I mean, over you i no i i am definitely a critic of camera camera work um i i can appreciate any movie that has a cinematic like a, just a beautiful cinematic even people that like step outside the box and are willing to like shoot something a little bit differently like i can appreciate that um but I am very judgmental. Maybe that's the horror in itself for me is that I'm very judgmental <laughs> about how people shoot things. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I grew up like I, I loved like action films and 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 comedy. Like that's that's more of like the genres that and I, I think it's because I've always thought that this world is just so kind of just screwed up that maybe I, I loved comedy for the reasons that it just kind of took me away from feeling like hopeless, you know, whereas yeah. horror movies, I'm like, Oh shit, that dude ain't getting away from that chainsaw, you know, like, <laughs> yeah. So, you know, like nice yeah. knowing you, but, um, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I would love, and I, and I know that there's a lot that probably have slipped my mind that I do appreciate. Like, I don't want to, completely right off the genre it's just not my go-to sure i'll just say that much yep sure ricardo what about you man um i grew well i grew up kind of watching horror more so than i do now unfortunately or fortunately i don't know um like the first videos that i remember making with my friends were all horror movies they were all slasher films and it was always something like that because i mean horror good horror is something that is hard to do but fun horror is usually pretty easy to do, especially when you're a bunch of like 12 year old kids with a VHS camera and, uh, you know, like a, a dummy and a knife. Yeah. But um, <laughs> I think like my favorite, like right off the bat, I think John Carpenter's The Thing is probably hands down one of my favorite um, horror films. Anything with practical effects like that. And with those older movies, I don't really, I'm not really one that like looks at cinematic type stuff and whatever. But I'm also not one that really – I'm not very picky about the stuff that I watch because I can believe anything. So I like a lot of B-movies and even movies that people are like, this movie's crap. It's like, oh, no, there's that one scene that I really like and I'll watch it because <laughs> of that. <laughs> so I don't know. But, um, yeah, the thing I really like, I think probably the scariest movie is the original Exorcist. Um, but only it's, it's only scary when you think about it and you're alone in a dark house. Um, but the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre is the one of the first VHS tapes I ever bought when I was literally like 12 years old. 
as well as I like the uh, the remake that came out, I think, in the 90s, which actually is pretty good. Um, and then if you haven't seen Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2, which is probably the most one of the most fun horror movies ever. Um, yeah, I don't know. I could I could rattle off tons and tons for sure. Yeah. All the Evil Dead movies are good. Those. So, yeah, I don't know. The, the thing is hands down my favorite, though. The thing is so sure. good. Yeah, so good. Yeah. And if uh, if you listen to episode, I don't, actually I don't know which one, but w- right now um, we're we're working through. Uh, this will be on episode two, but we are on one, two, and three are all of our episodes through October, and we're working mm-hmm. through our top fifteen, which is five uh, movies for each episode. You should check it out. Oh, nice. uh, the thing might get some love at some point. Foreshadowing. Um, but yeah, the thing is so good. And I actually just saw the Texas Chainsaw Massacre from beginning to end for the first time, like two weeks ago. I had seen clips from yeah. it my whole life, but I just never sat down to watch it. My wife and I finally watched it. I love that movie. I'm, I'm in. Yeah. It's, so I'm, I'm with you. It's ya. so dark, that movie. And then all, even obviously all the, most of the George Romero movies are good. I mean, I like, I, the, well, documentary i did previous to this was a george Romero documentary so i had to like watch a lot of his movies and including the ones that weren't um horror films which i mean he's i don't know he was he's got some duds but he's got some movies that were definitely thinking outside of the box and he was definitely before his time yeah and not like horror film type stuff so i don't know but yeah um definitely Check it out. I don't know what I'm talking about anyway. So <laughs> no, this is this is good, and and all it does is makes me want to break this down even more at some point. Uh, you know, at some point we should do this again. Uh, just yeah. you know, one on ones. I'll hang out with you guys. If you guys have a new project, hit me up because we will definitely do this. And uh, I would love to just break down you know genres or like talk about movies we love because that is like my favorite thing. That's kind of the whole reason I wanted to do this was to be able to talk about movies, you know, that I love. Yeah. Um, and of course, what's funny is all the people that are coming up that I can interview are like musicians and <laughs> like all of these other things. But all I want to do now is talk about movies with, <laughs> you know, um, but you're, hey, you're going to have a, you're going to have a field day with Aaron Bedard oh, and James Saboni. They're, they're both very, very much movie guys. James, I, I was, so I'm stalking, like I'm stalking social media on them. I'm like reading about them just to do like interviews and stuff. James is like hanging out with John Travolta. Like what's happening in the world? I can't wait to talk to him about it. I have no idea. I mean, it was just like the weirdest thing. I just see him there with John Travolta and I'm just like, why are you there? Like I almost get like defensive <laughs> about it. Like stop. Why? Um, well, our buddy, our buddy, Jimmy Marino, he works for John Travolta and like he he's I don't really know exactly what he does for John Travolta, but he goes everywhere with John Travolta. That so. is awesome. Yeah, uh, I, I, I can't wait. And I've seen some of them post stuff about movies and things. I'm like so excited uh, to see what they have to say. But uh, for this segment. I appreciate you guys being here. Everyone, go check out Holding These Moments. It uh, drops on the 13th. Should already be out by now. Um, You've already heard everywhere you can get it. Go check it out. Uh, For now, guys, thank you so much. Yeah, thanks for having us. Thank you very much for having us.
Here with Joe Shearer from the Film Yap, we are going to be revealing our 6 through 10 of our top 15 favorite horror movies of all time. Um, and uh, just a quick recap from episode 1. If you haven't checked out episode 1 yet, we reveal our 11 through 15. And you can go to iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, wherever you get your podcasts. We are probably on there. Go check it out. Uh, really awesome uh, conversation with Joe. We had a good yeah. time. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Fantastic. It was, it was terrific. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that was my insecurity talking. Anyway, so uh, <laughs> anyways, uh, I just want to give a recap on what we uh, talked about last time. Joe's picks, his number 15 was Beyond the Darkness. Number 14, Burial Ground. Number 13, Friday the 13th. Ooh, 13, Friday the 13th. You did that on purpose. Yeah, I didn't, <laughs> but you you actually pointed it out during the, the recording. I was like, oh, yeah, look at this 13. Look at that. <laughs> yeah, so 13 is Friday the 13th, Part 5, A New Beginning. 12 is Creep Show, And 11 is A Nightmare on Elm Street 3, Dream Warriors, which is very mm-hmm. exciting. Uh, my yeah. 15 was uh, Dead Alive or Brain Dead. It's the Peter Jackson 1992 gore fest. Uh, 14 is From Beyond. 13, The Conjuring. 12, The Fly. And 11 was Wreck, the Spanish 2007 found footage horror movie. And that's Very where nice. we were then. Um, I don't know. Uh, I'll ask you this first, Joe. Did uh, For your 6 through 10, is your criteria uh-huh. any different than it was for your 11 through 15? It, it's I think it kind of tightened up a little bit and I it, this is a little more of some of my more some more there's a little less I'll just say it like this there's a little less kitschiness and odd you know left field picks most of these are a little bit more mainstream anyway so yeah so I, I think it's tightening up to that you know to that degree more than it is you know I, I wasn't as loose and including something like, you know, Friday the 13th part five, for example, you know, if, if you're listening to that for the first time and you heard that you, you know, you may have, you know, choked on something, um, <laughs> but, <laughs> you know, but if, if you hadn't listened to the last episode, you know, you wouldn't, you wouldn't understand the reason I chose that one is because it is so ridiculous in so many ways, you know, and it is the, it's the least popular one, but I had, I have such a great time with it that, you know, I, I kind of count it as my favorite, even though, uh, you know, as I said at the time, with that and a Nightmare on Elm Street, I'm really kind of celebrating the franchise as much as anything. Um, but these are more films that either scared me in some way or that I just have a really soft spot for. Um, so there, there's a little more. There's a little. I'd say a little more seriousness as far as the horror goes. <laughs> Your fingers were very close when you said that. A little yeah. bit. A little well, bit. Well, especially with my first one, you know, you guys might be like, what's he talking about? More serious, because this one is not serious, but um <laughs> your number 10. Yeah, I you know, my mine's still the same. I mean, just to recap my criteria, you know, I had a few rules. I wanted to create a list that not only was populated by my favorites, but also contained a variety. So although it wasn't really a desert island list uh, I kind of treated it a little bit that way for example if I had multiple um, movies that could have kind of fit in to that number basically I mm-hmm. just kind of chose like out of all of my other choices which one if it were a desert island would it mm-hmm. be and that was kind of how I narrowed it down um, but there was one restriction one film per filmmaker so there are no there's only one like hypothetically someone like 
Wes Craven who did multiple, I would only have one, you know, or right. and so on. Uh, Stuart Gordon, I made one. It was from Beyond, yeah. you know. Um, even though I kind of cheated and talked about Reanimator a lot, but anyways, uh, you know, my picks are not necessarily reflective of the best films or the mm-hmm. best representations of horror, um, of the horror genre, but they're just my favorite, and I know that's kind of mm-hmm. how yours is too, Joe. And yeah. uh, we're gonna go ahead and start with our number ten. I'm gonna sure. let you start again, Joe. What's your number ten? Okay. Yeah. So my number ten, um, as I said, not necessarily all that serious. Uh, comes from the year 1997. Um, this is actually a film that if you knew nothing about it, when you start watching it, you might not necessarily even realize it's a horror movie. For you know the first half hour, 45 minutes, it's sort of a crime drama. Uh, this stars George Clooney, Quentin Tarantino, uh, Harvey Keitel. This is from Dusk Till Dawn. Uh, Robert Rodriguez directed that uh, $25 million uh, gross off a $19 million budget. So it was a very, very modest hit. Um, But my God, what a crazy ride that movie is. Uh, If you're not familiar with it, which if you're listening to this and you're into horror movies at all, you, you, if you have not seen it, you should. Uh, So basically uh, Clooney and Tarantino are brothers who are bank robbers. And they are in the midst of a crime spree. Then they've killed cops and Texas Rangers, and they're trying to get to Mexico. And they stop off at a hotel and pick up this family who has an RV trying to get across the border. Once they get across the border, they get to this bar called the Titty Twister, <laughs> which is a which is one of the greatest kind of setups in maybe in movie history. Um, and they go inside only to find out they're in the middle of a vampire biker bar and it just turns into a complete gore fest after that. Um, it's, it's, you know, it's got a lot of comedic elements to it, so, um, it doesn't take itself that seriously, but it's got a lot of, um, kind of, you know, older stars. It's a collaboration between Tarantino and Robert Rodriguez. Of course they did, um, the grindhouse, you know, thing years later, but this was, uh, I think their first real collaboration, um, well, after, after Desperado, I'm sorry. Like, you know, they, they did do that. <laughs> That's a minor thing, but, um, no, um, they, you know, they, they, I think this was their brainchild together and, you know, there's, there's people like Tom Savini who plays a small role. Fred Williamson, who was a, you know, a star from the seventies, um, is, is in it as well. Uh, Cheech Marin hat plays like three or four different roles, which is really hilarious. Um, just a balls out insane, crazy action horror movie where at one point there's a, a vampire playing a guitar made out of a person. (laughs) 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 And if you can't imagine that I could not have either imagined that until I saw the movie and it is nuts in so many different ways. Um, I haven't seen it. You should, if you can, if you're going to call yourself a horror fan at all, a fan of movies at all. So, um, yeah, that's that's my number 10, From Dusk Till Dawn. From Dusk Till Dawn is interesting because when I first saw that movie, uh, this is when I first, I think I mentioned this um, in my, I think when we were introducing ourselves, I believe, and I talked about how Tarantino played a huge role uh, kind of uh-huh. in my uh, my history. And so once I, once I found out what a Tarantino was, I dove in hard, man. I was watching, I watched four rooms. Uh I watched from dusk till dawn and, uh, watch what is it? My best friend's birthday or whatever his first one was that (laughs) I found it on like YouTube or something. 
Um, And uh, just like all of them, man, Pulp Fiction, Reservoir Dogs, Jackie Brown. Up to that point, uh, Kill Bill came out in 2003, and I did see it in theaters, and I hated it the first time. I love that movie now. But but, uh, prior to that, though, I was just taking it all in. I mean, he blew my mind. So watching it, the first half of it feels like some Tarantino. Yeah. Like Tarantino wrote it and Rodriguez filmed it like yeah. he did Desperado, basically, you know? Yeah. And it's just like super violent. Um, yes. Don't they like. Uh, here's a spoiler. And again, if you haven't seen it, this is on you. Shame on you. Oh. But uh, don't right. they shoot the store clerk in the head? Like, you know what yeah. scene I'm talking about? Yeah. Well, yeah. They. Yeah. So that's that's the opening scene of the movie where he there's this whole long conversation between the, the store clerk played by John Hawks, who's gone on to have a really good career. Yeah. The last especially the last, I don't know, six, seven years. And uh, Michael Parks is a is a Texas Ranger. And they're actually talking about the, the Gecko brothers and they're actually holding up the store secretly. And yeah. And you find out the clerk has been is his kind of playing along so that they don't all get killed and they have a hostage and all this stuff. And yeah. And it turns into this wild shootout. The, the thing, and this might be what you're thinking about. Um, they had robbed a bank, you know, before the film started and they have the, the teller in the trunk and Clooney goes to scout out like the border or something, leaving his brother, uh, like I said, played by Tarantino with her in a hotel room or in a motel room, you know, um, and he comes back with with lunch or something, and he's sitting there. He like you know he, Richie is, is Tarantino's character name. He hands Richie a sandwich or a hamburger, and he starts to eat his. And he looks down and like there's an extra burger there. And he's like, "Where's the where's the girl at?" And he's like, "Oh, she's in the bedroom." And so he like opens the door to the bedroom, and he has presumably raped and you know definitely murdered her. And you only see like maybe a frame or two. You see, you see the the camera zooming up, it zooming in on on Clooney's face, and just the look of exasperation and horror on his face, and it and you only get these flashes, sort of like The Exorcist, the um, you know when they show Pazuzu, mm-hmm. it's that kind of just flash, and it's really creepy, um, and it it shows you you know because up to that point Tarantino had been almost a comedic character, you know there's a yeah. he got shot in the hand and he's like wrapping his hand in duct tape and. And it's just it's done very you know in this very joking manner, but that's that scene is so just disconcerting and serious, and you know and Clooney kind of melts down you know and and ha- you know you see the relationship they have at that point that that Richie is kind of a psychopath. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's the it's the it's the realization and acknowledgement that my brother is something that I can't support, right? Like yes. like, but yeah. I have to because he's blood. But at the same time, right. like I don't want to be associated with a person like this because Clooney's not that person, which is how he can kind of be the anti-hero kind of a thing toward the end. And I just remember watching it. And of course I don't remember it well enough. I mean, you just reminded me Mm -hmm. of that scene, which I do remember now. Um, But I remember just once the zombie or zombies, once the vampires came out, I just like hated it. The first time I saw it the first time (laughs) I just didn't Uh get it. They looked weird. I didn't know who Tom Savini was. Like, I don't know, man. I just, I just didn't get it. I mean, of course, like the, the human guitar was really cool, but but they just looked weird and there's like so much blood and I don't know. It just was weird. 
But after, like years later, after I had watched a lot more and Tarantino had had a few more movies come out and they had done Grindhouse and they did, mm-hmm. you know, uh, Rodriguez was doing Sin City and all those things. I went back and yeah. I remember watching it and just thinking, this feels like two different movies to me, but I yeah. like both of them. Does that oh, make yeah. sense? Well, yeah. And I think Absolutely. that was the disappointing thing because I knew Tarantino was involved in it and I was expecting a Tarantino movie, even though it wasn't solely his so my yeah. first viewing was like, well, the first half of this is awesome. Now, what the fuck just happened? You know? Yeah, and, yeah. But I, I'm on board. Yeah, I, I like yeah. it. I'm pretty sure. I don't know if I own it anymore, but I should. I, that's a fun one, man. I mean, oh, it's, yeah. it's just a movie I can have fun with now, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. And I'm happy I'm at that place. But number 10 is, uh, is I just lost all my notes. Anyways, number <laughs> 10, uh, From Dust Till Dawn. That's Joe's pick. That's right. Uh, my number 10 is uh, a, a quick uh, recap of something I was talking to Joe about earlier. Um, number 10 was a different title until today yeah. because um, I ended up changing it because I didn't feel like I remembered it enough to confidently put it on the list, and I will get to what that original title was when I talk about honorable mentions on next episode. But uh, I changed it to this one because this movie really impresses me, and I recently... Uh, watched it again. It is uh, a 1960 French horror movie, Eyes Without a Face. Have you seen this, Joe? I have not seen that. No. Well, this is uh, this is this is a fun ride. I'm going to try oh. to say these names correctly, but um, basically, the basic synopsis. This is pretty much straight from Letterboxd. Is uh, Doctor Genesier. I'm going to say that's how you say it. Genesier. Do you like my <laughs> accent? Uh, Doctor Genesier. <laughs> is riddled with guilt after an accident that he caused, disfigures the face of his daughter, the once beautiful Christiane, who outsiders believe is dead. So they think Christiane's dead, right? Um, Dr. Genesier, I have to say it that way now, Dr. Genesier, along with accomplice and laboratory assistant Louise, kidnap young women and uh, bring them to the Genesier mansion. And after rendering his victims unconscious, Dr. Genesier removes their faces and attempts to graft them onto Christians. Um, okay. It is literally that simple. Um, this came out the same year Peeping Tom and Psycho came out. So this is like, for me, if you're doing 60s horror, this is the trilogy. Like, I feel yeah. like um, they're all ahead of their time. They're all... Uh, equally intense in different ways. This movie really blows my mind because uh, of how it shows... I mean, it straight up shows him with a scalpel cutting their face off, and it's actually extremely graphic for the 60s. Uh, I mean, they're, like, showing it through the... It's kind... It almost made me squeamish, and I... I mean... I watched Martyrs, <laughs> you know, like, like, I mean, what am I squeamish about? But man, it, yeah. there's just, uh, it's, it's pretty intense, but I love it. I absolutely love it. It really is the entire movie. It's this simple. Uh, the doctor uh, sends Louise's assistant to find these women that look similar to what his daughter once looked like. And his daughter literally has no face and she wears this, I think you're looking up pictures by the look on your face, but she wears <laughs> this like porcelain mask or something. And it's strange because yeah. at times in the black and white, it looks like a real person, kind yeah. of like until yeah. until you're really looking or when it's close up. But man, it's kind of wild. It's pretty creepy. And uh, when he's like 
putting at one point I'll just say this he he grafts a face onto her and then yeah. it does this pretty quick cut like every one second it like cuts or something I don't remember the exact yeah. number of seconds but like pretty brief cuts where it shows like and a voiceover where it talks about like after two days you started to see rot you know and so every cut is like her face like starting to sag and deform where they have to take off the graft it didn't take and she has to wear the mask again and those yeah. cuts are awesome as well yeah. um i mean man it's just one of those ahead of this of its time it's budget i can't find how much they spent on it um but it made approximately $60,000 worldwide that's so wow. little uh, I'm pretty sure it might have only went to like two countries. I don't know that for sure. Don't quote me on that. Um, but I was on Box Office Mojo, and it only had like two countries worth of numbers from what I saw. So I haven't looked into that. But, I mean, criminally underrated. If you Google best horror films of all time, this will be somewhere in that mix of stuff they show you. Um, yeah. But I only know like two people who've seen this. Now, of course, millions of people have probably seen it now. But my, but the point is, right. like, I know a lot of people that like movies, man. <laughs> and yeah. I don't know hardly anyone who's seen this. Uh, my number 10, Eyes Without a Face, 1960, Georges Franju. Yeah. Um, please go check it out. I don't know. Yeah. I, I think it's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's, the, well, and, and a lot of this, you know, you know, and I referenced a couple of Italian movies, um, you know, last time. So, you know, there's there's a lot of kind of these European, you know, filmmakers from from this time within this 10, 15 year time frame that did some really just off the wall, depraved, weird, creepy kind of stuff. Yeah. So, to, yeah, to, that, that's, that's a pretty good pick to go on a tangent real quick to what you just said. I mean, you have people like Mario Bava who just yeah. a few years from the making of this was making slasher films, which is yeah. crazy. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't remember when A Bay of Blood came out. Do you remember? Uh, I don't. Yeah, not off the top of my head. I think yeah. it was 60s. I could be wrong. Yeah. I kind of feel bad that I don't have that in front of me, but I wasn't planning on bringing it up. But um, I just I want to say this just randomly. A Bay of Blood, the original title, Twitch of the Death Nerve, probably the greatest horror title uh, I've ever heard. Uh, but, uh, yeah, the sixties has a lot of gems and especially the foreign ones that didn't get quite as big a release here. Yeah. I, I have 1971 for a Bay of Blood, by the okay. way. Okay. Yeah. I was off a little bit, but he did make <laughs> movies uh, as early, I believe as like 65 or something. I, again, yeah. I don't have it right in front of me. Um, and I don't want people to just listen to me click while I look for it. So, uh, that's my right. number 10 eyes without a face. Uh, Joe, why don't you go with your number nine, man? Yeah, num number nine for me, um, film from 1987. Um, this is one that at the time when I saw it, um, it, really it took a couple of years for for audiences, I think, to catch on. I lived in Germany, actually, when I saw this movie um, on home video. It was my first um, experience with a an actor by the name of Terry O'Quinn, who would become very well known for a lot of different things, not the least of which would be we'd become lost in the uh, in part of the century. But this is the first thing I ever saw him in. Um, he was doing um, some other weird horror actually at this time um, that I didn't know about until just recently. Um, uh, a film I saw called Pin, which is not my my pick, although that's a terrific movie. This movie 
um, spawned a couple of sequels and a remake in the last several years, uh, maybe like 10 years ago. This movie is called The Stepfather. Um, it uh, was directed by Joseph Rubin, um, who has a, um, a kind of a horror movie, you know, uh, filmography all his own. Um, it only made two and a half million dollars, but it only cost $260,000 to make it. Um, it also stars uh, Jill Shalin, someone who I'm actually Facebook friends with these days. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and Terry O'Quinn is a uh, a man who has sort of a uh, – well, number one, he has some very severe mental illness. But he is sort of obsessed with having the all-American stereotypical family. Um, but he also has severe rage problems. And as the film opens, he is um, he has murdered his family, his wife and his children. And he walks away, moves to another town, and starts wooing a young, um, you know, divorcee, uh, fairly young divorcee, um, who you know who has a, a teenage daughter of her own, and he starts to become obsessed with the idea of having of becoming a family with them. So um, he's he's this murderous, you know, psycho who wants to be. He's if you think if you think of Norman Bates with kind of instead of mommy issues, it's more like you know wife issues. He's got an obsession with this, um, you know, with being the all American father and, and having the perfect family. And then when that family lets him down in some way, he you know he snaps and murders them. Um, it, it's very low key. It's very um, it's very low budget. It's very psychological in nature. It, uh, you know, there's there's a couple of kills. It's it's sort of a slasher movie in a way, but there's only a couple of kills. Um, but Terry O'Quinn is perfect in this film, um, and it, you know, it, it has a very '80s ending. And then, of course, um, there are sequels. So um, he's someone who takes a licking and keeps on ticking, so to speak. Um, the, my my favorite thing um, about this franchise is in the third film. By the time the third film comes along, um, Terry O'Quinn has become, you know, a kind of a bigger star than you know this franchise can support. And and this is a very very low budget film, and so they they recast him, and they use this very quick, uh, you know, thing where oh he gets plastic surgery to become someone who looks. <laughs> completely different <laughs> number one terry o'quinn was losing his hair in the first film and the guy who replaces him has a full head of hair in the third film and looks completely different sounds completely different um and that that movie is terrible um the first one especially is sort of an unheralded classic the second one is you know if you're a fan of the first one is worth watching the remake is a complete waste of time um but just in terms of of this low budget creepy suspense, um, the stepfather is is it for me. It's it's one of the it's one of the the ones that's the most memorable, um, you know, from my childhood. So so that's kind of why I chose that one in this spot. Wow. Yeah. You you have another one that I haven't seen. We are we are setting each other up for a good October. Yeah. I'm telling uh, you. Um, yeah. So uh, yeah, uh, that's the stepfather. Joe's number stepfather. nine. Uh, from 1987, you said, right? Yes. 87. Yes. All right. So Joe's number nine. Hold on. I'm choking. <coughs> Excuse me. <laughs> Joe's number nine, the stepfather. Um, 
My number nine is probably the first, with the exception of maybe something like Creep Show, maybe The Fly. This is the first like high end would be on. I feel like most people's probably top five. It is number nine for me. It is the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre from 1974. Toby Hooper. And, um, you know, I, I have a synopsis on here. I don't think it's warranted. I'm pretty sure we all understand that uh, the character of Sally and her brother Franklin find out that uh, their grandfather's grave may have been vandalized. So th- them and a few friends, you know, go there to uh, investigate, but are detoured from their family's old farmhouse and discover a group of crazed, murderous outcasts living next door. Um, you know, this is where we find Leatherface. This is where we find Grandpa. This is where we, f- I mean, you know, it, uh, every character is over the top. Every character is, um, dude, I, let me just, I, I'm going to out myself here. I had never seen Texas Chainsaw Massacre from beginning to end. I'd seen, of course, all of these huge, like all the big scenes, you know, I'd seen the dinner table scene, but I never watched it from beginning to end until I think maybe two or three weeks ago. And I finally just, my wife and I, we sat down and we threw it in and uh, we started, uh, we watched like the new 4K restoration, you know, (laughs) that came out a few years ago for their 40th anniversary or whatever. And man, you know, I'll I'll be damned if I wasn't uh, honestly impressed. I, I was afraid that a lot of people had watched it when they were younger and it was a nostalgia that kept it being so good because I just couldn't understand how people love this movie so much. I really couldn't because all the scenes I had seen were so over the top. I mean, that dinner scene with Grandpa and the three, like, you know, Leatherface and uh, the guy with the big uh, either birthmark or scar on his face, I think it was a scar, um, and and the uh, the uh, filling station Guy, I don't. I wish I knew their names, but uh, I'm terrible with names. But anyways, like all four of them, man, the like they torture her emotionally. You know, I mean, she's just sitting, you know, tied up at this dinner table, and they're all just like poking fun and you know, essentially, um, just like psychologically fucking with her, and she's freaking out, and they're just over the top. So when I go into it, I'm like, this is just an over the top you know, silly movie and I'm watching it and man, it's weird. Like just the way it's shot, the way that, uh, the way Leatherface looks like, of course he does not look like that in any other movie. I mean, like, cause they, they realize Leatherface is cool. So they like start trying to make him cool. Not understanding that part of what makes him so cool is that he looks fucked up. Like he looks, he looks like, like, you know, when you first see him, he just has a big apron on and he just like, you know, conks one of the people in the head and drags him back and is going to like chainsaw him up. But then later, whenever I think he's like helping yeah. cook or something and he's like dressed like a woman, but he still has the mask on. I mean, dude, I, I know yes. I know a lot of that is like influenced by, you know, Ed Gein and a lot of serial killers from before, as are I feel like most horror movies at that time, <laughs> like Psycho yeah. and and all uh-huh. of those. But Man, I was honestly sincerely impressed with Texas Chainsaw Massacre. It cost approximately a hundred grand to make, give or take a few ten thousands here or there. Um, I've seen anywhere from eighty to one hundred and forty, but I'll just say approximately a hundred thousand made thirty million dollars. That's a huge success, and uh, I am blown away that a movie from the mid seventies with a hundred thousand dollars 
mm-hmm. looks so good, uh, feels so good. I mean, man, whenever they're whenever Sally and Franklin, uh, for those of you who either forget who Franklin is or haven't seen it, uh, Franklin is a paraplegic and he's mm-hmm. in a uh, wheelchair and they're yeah. trying to go through like essentially just like the the these uh, wildlands basically, you know, uh, yeah, like these backwoods like. F- dusty farmland and uh so he can't move very quickly or easily you know he's he's off road basically yeah and uh leatherface runs out man and and uh, i mean you know it's needless to say franklin's donezo and (laughs) but when when he's chasing sally that's intense man like i sincerely felt like Uh, tension there i mean he's i think in large part because what's his name gunner hansen the actor yes uh-huh. He, one, I found out he had never wielded a chainsaw in his life. And he was uh-huh. like, if I had ever touched one while it was on, I probably wouldn't have done half the shit that I did. I guess at <laughs> right. one point he was like just flailing it around like he does and it lost it. Like he slipped and it fell out of his hand and landed yeah. like a couple feet from him. Like this was uh-huh. a full chained chainsaw. Like this was working oh, and he could have died. You know what I mean? Yeah. But he, yeah. he was just ignorant to it. He had no idea what to uh, do. And so I just, I love the sloppiness of it. Um, mm-hmm. When I was talking to our mutual friend, Sam Watermeyer from the Midwest film journal, he put it uh, something like uh, it's just a really dungy movie that you mm-hmm. would find like in a really dirty, like, like a, uh, like puddle or something next to like a dead yes. rat. Like it's, the, yes. <laughs> you know, like it's just a really gross dungy movie. I know you've seen this. What oh, do you yeah. think about the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, yeah, Joe? Yeah, it's yeah, it, you're exactly right about all that. Yeah, it is. It is very. It is so gritty, and you, from the start of the movie, before you even get to the house, the movie somehow manages to set that feeling. You know the feeling when you're at, you're somewhere in the dead of summer. And there's dust blowing around and you're just sweaty and there's just dirt in your pores. That's what that movie is like. The entire, like that movie gives you that feeling from the very start. And, you know, that you referenced that scene, that famous scene where you first see Leatherface. That scene is really, you know, if just watching it, the, the kind of the, the filmmaking of it is, is an achievement. It just, in horror, you know, he, he breaks through this house, right? He busts through this door, cracks girl in the head with a hammer and drags her. It's like a meat tenderizer hammer or something. He drags her into the back, sticks her on a hook and starts working to, you know, like basically butcher her, uh, you know, like you would a, a cattle, you know, like a side of beef. And it's so disturbing. Yeah. And, you know, you, you again, you reference the dinner scene, the, just the glee on their faces and, you know, Sally is, is screaming and is, you know, like you said, being tortured physically and psychologically. And, you know, they're, they're trying to get uh, grandpa to, to actually be the one to deliver the death blow. So he's got the hammer and they've got her head stuck over this bucket. And he's physically like, you think he's dead, right? Like he, he can't physically lift the hammer. So they're putting the hammer in his hand and lifting it up and dropping it. He keeps dropping it. And it's just this, it's it would almost be comedic. And there's kind of a comedic element to it, right? 
but it's also just so horrific. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's, the, yeah, it's, it's it's the juxtaposition of like it's kind of funny that he can't hit her and they're all like yeah. screaming in this over exact. I mean, this should be funny, but yeah, the, like yeah. uh, I just looked up her name. Uh, Marilyn Burns plays Sally. Yeah. Excellent mm-hmm. performance. Yes. Like in the scare in the parts where she's scared. I mean, like those the yeah. fright moments. Oh. Uh, she like that dinner scene. She is excellent. And there's that iconic shot of her in the truck at the end. Where she's yeah. in the back of it, and she has that like she's screaming, yeah. um, and I just that close I, up on her eyes. Yeah. Oh, it's so yeah. good! And you know, I I think it's really important to say if you haven't seen it, like I hadn't, you know, less than a month ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, I feel like let's let's put this into perspective. Prior to the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, you know, we didn't have The Shining, we didn't have uh, Friday the Thirteenth, we didn't have any of those movies. We had The Exorcist, yeah. which is a very different type of horror movie. We had yeah. uh, we didn't even have Jaws yet, man. We yeah, had we yeah. had uh, we had Psycho, uh, The yeah. Haunting. I mean, you know, we had we had those types of like haunted house movies. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Psycho, which is like kind of this like based on our standards for today, this kind of faux slasher. And you have, I mean, there's you know, there's a lot of stuff going on in Europe and stuff that we mentioned, but none of that going on here. I can't imagine how scary this no. was. And whenever whenever he knocks out the dude with that meat tenderizer hammer or whatever. Uh-huh. Like it doesn't look like later movies would look in those scenes. Like we could sit here and list several scenes that happened, and you could think of another movie that did it. And I will put money down that it does not look or feel like this movie. Oh no, absolutely, yeah, yeah. No, you're absolutely right. I mean, it, it really what it does is it shows uh, it shows that Toby Hooper can make a movie, uh-huh. and uh, and of course you know he. I think he did like eaten alive later or something, but yeah, uh, I never saw that, but I want to, cause it yeah. looks hilarious. Um, and I think it has like Harry Dean Stanton or something in it, which is awesome. But anyways, but he does poltergeist later, which is really like, I mean, what another classic in his, uh, repertoire, I guess. But you know, like, uh, I can't stress enough that this movie has a vision. It has a feel. It shows the, uh, the ability of the filmmaker to be able to create something unique on a small budget, you know, with uh, really under a bunch of circumstances that the movie should not be good. Yeah, and honestly, yeah. and, and I, I believe uh, that movies uh, benefit from having boundaries like little money like that to get creative to figure out how can I pull this off. Um, but this is like on a different level, man. I, I mean, for a movie to have been out for what is it now? 46 years, I guess. And still, I mean, especially for someone like me who's picky as shit, to be in my top ten, I am very impressed with this movie. And that is my number nine, Toby Hooper's 1974 Tour de Force. I'll use that term. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Let's go ahead and move forward, Joe. Let me hear your number eight. Well, your number eight, you, you might be surprised to learn my number eight. Um, is another film by the very same director. You just you just mentioned it, 1982's Poltergeist. Um, <laughs> I was really kind of hoping it was going to be Eaten Alive because that would fit yeah. with some. <laughs> I have seen Eaten Alive. Um, that movie's crazy. Um, yeah, and and yeah, that I don't know. That might be an honorable mention. Um, there's a couple of uh, 70s kind of horror movies that have been kind of lost to time a little bit, but um, but Poltergeist, you know, was his really his big budget coming out party, more or less, um, teaming up with Steven Spielberg. Um, like I said, it comes out from 1982. 
um, makes $77 million off a $10 million budget. Um, it was a pretty major hit, you know, for, you know, for its time. Um, of course the behind the scenes of this movie is as interesting as the movie itself. Um, there, you know, there are, um, just rumors out there like crazy that have pretty much been, uh, I think confirmed by most people that, that, um, Toby Hooper and Steven Spielberg didn't get along that well. And mm. at one point, Steven Spielberg sent him home and just took over producing the movie or directing the movie. Um, yeah, there, there's, there are strong rumors that, yeah, Steven Spielberg functionally directed about half of the movie. Um, but they kept it a secret for quite a while. Um, there's the famous poltergeist curse, um, you know, where several of the cast members, including Carol O'Rourke, the little girl who played Carol Ann, uh, did I call her Carol O'Rourke? That's not her name. Um, Heather O'Rourke. Um, she she had a mysterious illness and, and died um, just after the making of, of Poltergeist 3, um, which as a kid was just crushing to me. Um, but anyway, so Poltergeist, you know, if you have not seen it for whatever reason, um, again, shame on you <laughs> as a kind of a modern horror classic. Um, it, it centers on a family who moves into a house in, in suburbia and um, – they start seeing weird things happening and, um, you know, drawers open, you know, or kitchen cabinets opening by themselves. Um, if they sit in a certain spot in the kitchen floor, they will be moved by some force, by some mysterious force. And it turns out that mysterious force is a poltergeist, is a ghost. And uh, the daughter, uh, the, who's, uh, I believe she's like maybe four or five at the time, um, is is um, abducted by the ghosts, and then the rest of the family calls in. Really, it's in, in a sense as a precursor to Ghostbusters. They call in three paranormal experts to come in and rescue her. Um, obviously, minus most of the comedy. Um, uh, Joe Beth Williams, Craig T. Nelson are the stars, are the main stars of it. Um, Dominique Dunn, who plays their teenage daughter, um, is another uh, victim of that curse. Shortly after the film came out, she was, uh, I believe, she was strangled to death by her boyfriend. Um, so just a lot of like really unfortunate, you know, tragic things that happened around the movie. Um, and, and then it's, uh, it's sequels. It has a couple of sequels. And then of course, again, a remake, uh, that came out with Sam Rockwell a few years back. I, I actually never saw that remake, but, um, this is really a terrific movie. Um, the, the big, um, the big, I guess, secret of the movie more or less is that the house, the reason why the house is haunted is that the, um, the, real estate company that built the houses um, relocated a cemetery that was on the, you know, on the land, but they didn't actually move the bodies. They just took the headstones out. And so, and then started building. And now the, you know, the, the spirits of these, the dead are unhappy about that. So um, it's, it's really a good movie. It's really a good commentary on suburbia and uh, you know, kind of family dynamics. There's of course the, uh, the classic scene where, uh, the uh this toy clown uh, attacks the the children there are just all kinds of different ghostly monsters and things it's it's a terrific movie it's a, a good kind of fun house movie um one you definitely need to see if you have not so that, that's that's my number eight continue again continuing toby hooper um yeah uh poltergeist is my number eight yeah, I mean, it. Uh, I have several things to mention, but I, I will start with saying, have you seen the uh, TV series that is on Shudder called Cursed Films? 
I have not. No. Uh, this is a pretty cool uh, show. Uh, they're just. I think they're just like half out. Yeah. They're. I'm looking at it right now. They're like half an hour episodes. Excuse me. And uh, they do one on The Exorcist. They do one on The Omen, Poltergeist, The Crow, and Twilight Zone, the movie. Mm-hmm. And it basically talks about all the weird shit behind the scenes that happened. Yeah. A lot of what you were talking about. And just a lot of uh, strange, unexplainable occurrences, you know. So, like, I, yeah. I believe it was Twilight Zone, the movie. That's uh, the scene. That's yes. the time where the the one of the actors had two children, <laughs> and then yeah, a hel- yeah, the helicopter goes down and just like yeah. destroys them. You know, I mean, really yes. horrific things. Uh, but mm-hmm. it's it's a pretty cool. I mean, it doesn't go in depth. You know, I feel like you could do full documentaries on some of these things. But it's a oh, yeah. really cool little introduction to some of the weird stuff you were talking about. Another yeah. thing, I didn't know the thing about Spielberg directing, actually, mm-hmm. uh, if if that happened. But it seems like it's come out that that probably did. And yeah. uh, I, I always felt like leading up to kind of the crazy last half, maybe, of the movie, uh, mm-hmm. especially like when they're in the kitchen on the ground. And I think they like roll something and it like yeah. rolls back. That feels like huh? fucking E.T. or something. I mean, that feels like yeah. that Spielberg huh? feel. Mm-hmm. So uh, I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm honestly not surprised uh, that that happened. But that's also <laughs> kind of unfortunate, I guess, for Hooper. But you know what? Yeah. He did get a lot of praise for the movie. And uh, mm-hmm. I, I think it's an absolute great choice. Again, I went with Texas Chainsaw Massacre. But I think mm-hmm. Poltergeist very easily could have been on this uh, on my list as well. Um, but yeah, the curse film thing is, uh, really interesting. And I will say, uh, the remake of Poltergeist is not good. Anybody listening to this fight me, you can fight me <laughs> on, uh, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at medium cool pod. Anyways. Um, so yeah, that's, uh, that's, uh, Joe's number eight, uh, Poltergeist by Toby Hooper. Uh, my number eight is a movie that I've never put on a horror list before. Because I never really thought of it as a horror movie. And then, as I'm doing research for this list a few weeks ago, uh, it was popping up on all of them, and I started thinking about it, and I I basically just conceded to the fact that you could make the argument that this clearly is a horror movie, and I think you could also make an argument like the other way. But I'm going with uh, the 2008 Tomas Alfredson movie, Let the Right One In. A uh, Swedish, uh, an awesome Swedish movie. Uh, it's set in 1982 in the suburb of uh, Blackburg, Stockholm. Uh, and a 12-year-old Oscar is a lonely outsider bullied at school by his classmates. And at home, Oscar dreams of revenge against the trio of bullies. He befriends his 12-year-old next-door neighbor, Ellie, uh, who only appears at night in the snow-covered playground outside their building. Um, this is a... Man, you've seen this? I have, yeah. Uh, I think you probably understand probably why I had a hard time putting it in like a horror movie thing. Um, yeah. I mean, again, the themes... Like me just reading that, that doesn't sound like one at all. Uh, but yeah. there are clear themes that I think you could easily throw this into this... Uh, uh, I don't know. Maybe it's almost like a gothic horror movie set in 1982 yeah. or something. I mean, <clears throat> I mean, there's like this uh, romance between the two. Uh, uh, Oscar is this little you know nerdy kid that gets picked on, uh, and he's just like stabbing trees with a pocket knife, acting like it's them, you know. And 
Uh, Ellie is the 12 year old vampire. She's been 12 for like 200 years. And, um, and you know, they basically become really great friends. I, uh, this is a masterpiece in my opinion. I mean, I think this is absolutely gorgeous. I think the movie looks beautiful and, um, man, there's a scene where they go into this hospital and this, uh, uh, Ellie had, okay. Ellie had a caretaker since mm-hmm. this caretaker was a kid, and as he grew up, he kept Ellie with him, and Oscar's almost kind of becoming the new caretaker because the yeah. old man now is not faring too well. And so yeah. uh, once he dies uh, or jumps to his death, <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, he's uh, she needs to eat. So he used to go kill people, drain them out, and bring her blood, but now she doesn't have that, so she has to go get her own. Mm-hmm. And she yeah. bites this woman, but doesn't kill her because she gets interrupted. And the woman goes home, and all of her cats are freaking out and like attacking her because she's like becoming a vampire. But she's yeah. in the hospital because she's sick. And yeah. they throw the curtains over open, and she bursts into this huge, uproarious flame. And it's one of the most shocking things. It looks so real. I mean, it is yeah. real fire, whereas in... Yeah. In Let Me In, the uh, the 2010 mm-hmm. remake, which I also like, actually, yeah, in terms of, like, if Let the Right One In didn't exist, I'd be like, oh, that's a cool movie. Unfortunately, yeah. Let the Right One In, in my view, is vastly better. So mm-hmm. it just kind of hurts the 2010 remake. But I would encourage you to see Let Me In, too. It, it's good. Yeah. But this is just, this is the, the uh, my overwhelming favorite. And, uh Man, I, I just feel like I could talk about this forever. That 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 <laughs> that burst into flame is really great. Uh, the final scene, they they learn to communicate in Morse code by tapping on the wall because they live across, like right next to each other, their apartments. Yeah. Um, and that plays like an, an emotionally powerful scene at the very end of the movie. It is for me at least. Like I get emotional yeah, yeah. watching it, which is like super weird. Um, yeah. Yeah. Because, yeah, I don't know. I don't want to give that away because I think a lot of people right. may not have seen this yet. And because, uh, it, you know, its budget was four and a half million dollars. The box office was 11 million. So it was a success. Um, but, you know, just it's just not enough. I mean, it it, yeah. it deserves to be seen by more people. And if people can get past the subtitles, uh, much mm-hmm. like, you know, pre 2000 me. Uh, right. <laughs> um, <laughs> if they can just get past it, you if you are listening right now and you're like my father and you don't like to read movies, I encourage you to try this one on for size. Yeah. Because if you watch it, I promise you an excellent experience. Whether by the end you're like, cool, uh, now I want to go watch you know, more foreign movies or not. Watch this. Um, my wife, unfortunately, didn't know that on the Blu-ray she could switch it to the original language with subtitles. So she uh-huh. watched it dubbed. I guess oh, that's an option. Don't yeah. do that. Uh, Don't do that. We're, we're going to be very adamant against that. Um, yeah. So uh, post-2003 Austin cringes at the thought. Um, mm-hmm. But anyways, uh, Joe, what do you think of this movie? Yeah, I, I did love that movie. The That, to me, the... Um, I, now, I've only seen it once, and I saw it closer to when it actually... I think it was it was on home video, but it was a couple of years after. Um, it's It's been long enough that... I kind of have 
lasting memories. You mentioned the the the, the sequence about the you know with the woman bursting into flames, which you know you reminded me of. And I was like, oh yeah, that. But that last sequence um, is amazing. It's um, the the film's a slow burn. Um, yeah, and like you said, if not for these supernatural elements, you could even argue it's not a horror movie. Um, but yeah, it's it's kind of this sweet romance for you know for most of between two children, you know, and it, yeah, it's it's got a lot of secrets that are just really just fun and satisfying, and and that that last scene is just badass. That's all I could say. Oh is yeah, just, it's, it's great, amazing. I'll just yeah. say this: Ellie comes to save the day, and it involves a swimming pool and decapitations. That's all I'll say. Yeah. I mean, it's it's oh. <laughs> it's pretty great. And, and yeah. that, and the scene with the more—I mean, just the whole end—is just great. Yeah. And 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 it's uh, it's pretty shocking at times, but it's it's um, so appropriately done. Like I never yeah. felt awkward with the kids, but it, mm-hmm. you know, like it's I, I basically what justified it as a horror movie for me is leading up to this. I was trying to think of some medium cool you know, movie lessons I could do. And, <laughs> and for the first one I, I did body horror, but I was looking up a bunch of subgenres, and one of them was Gothic horror. And mm-hmm. so whenever you think of Gothic horror, you might be thinking of movies like, you know, uh, you know, uh, the woman in black or mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, like, yeah. like those types the, or even the something, hammer vampire films of the seventies and sixties. You got you know? it, man. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Like, you know, Nosferatu or like whatever, you know, like these, these movies yeah. that, you know, take place in a, a older time, there's usually a romantic aspect, all of that. And so when I started like reading all the characteristics, I'm like, fuck man, like let mm-hmm. the right one in fits here. And, uh, yeah. so I, it, honestly, it was a justification for me to put it in. Cause I just, yeah. I adore this movie mm-hmm. so much. Unfortunately, there are seven movies that I appreciate more, at least as horror films. And that's the key, because this could yeah. be higher. But in terms of horror movies, I think there are seven better. And uh-huh. uh, uh, But th- that that's that's my number eight. I can't encourage you enough. Go check it out. I feel mm-hmm. like I've talked about it too long. Um, but it is it is really a treasure. Uh, Joe, yeah. why don't you go ahead and give us your number seven? Yeah, my, my number seven is um, – it's another Stephen King joint. Um, this one's from 1989. Uh, it, it is uh, a very well-known film called Pet Cemetery. Um, there's th- – this is another one of those – this is one of those films for me that in some ways it looks very low budget. It it almost feels and and I didn't really mention this with the stepfather, um, but step the stepfather has this really cheap production value look to it, and there's there are times when when Pet Cemetery has that same thing. Uh, it, it stars Dale Midkiff, who um, was not a huge he he was not a huge star at the time. He had, he played Elvis in a miniseries. Um, he actually went on to have a science fiction uh, time travel series called Time Tracks in the nineties. Um, those are really that and and this film are really his kind of main claims to fame. Um, he plays um, a, a doctor who uh, moves to a town with his family, his his son and daughter. Uh, again, if you're not familiar with this, um, he um, his next door neighbor is an old man played by Fred Gwynn, who uh, again was most famous as Herman Munster in The Munsters. Um, then he would later on go on to be in My Cousin Vinny. His, of course, he's in many other things, but. Uh, again, those are his two kind of major, uh, you know, the, the average person knows him from one of those two. Um, 
if you're older, probably the Munsters and, you know, as a, he's a comedic actor in both of them here, he's a much more serious type. Um, so he is an old man who's lived on this, you know, in this rural area on a, on one of those two lane highways where, you know, cars just fly by. Right. So, you know, pe- people go 70, 80, 90 miles an hour on these roads without a second thought, not, you know, not even paying attention to the houses there or thinking that maybe there are children or pets present. Um, so the road takes those pets quite often. Um, so the, the old man takes, um, and this of course happens to his fence to the family cat and, and this man, Judd takes, uh, uh, jeez, oh, I can't remember his name now. Um, jeez, I'm going to have to, like, I've got to tell you this, the guy's name. <laughs> Lewis Creed is his name. Sorry, I just forgot his, his first name. Um, he takes Lewis back in, you know, into the woods and, and back behind the woods. There's a, a pet cemetery where all these pets have been buried. But behind that is a is another place um, where the soil is rockier, um, and it, you know it's it's creepy and it's a it, you know in in the parlance of the times. Um, which doesn't you know necessarily transfer that well today. It's it's a an Indian burial ground, a Native American burial ground, where when you bury something there, it comes back to life. But it's not the same. So there's a lot of these, you know, there's a lot of these ethical questions, you know. Um, so anyway, the, the family cat gets killed and and Lewis takes the cat and buries it, not wanting to upset his daughter, and the cat comes back and it is you know, it's, it's not right. It's, it's mean. And, uh, you know, it's not the sweet pet they remember. So, um, you know, there's a series of events that happens and it ends up, uh, uh, it ends up necessitating a human being buried there, uh, with, with, uh, horribly disastrous results. So, um, it's, it's a terrific, you know, morality play in a lot of ways. Um, as a as a horror movie, there's you know there's a lot of um, pretty cool things that happen. Um, Miko Hughes um, is the the name of the young actor who plays Gage Creed, who is their toddler son. Um, he actually had a pretty strong cr- uh, career. He I believe he was in Wes Craven's New Nightmare as Heather Langenkamp's son, and so and he has a couple of pretty creepy scenes in that. Um, he was an adorable little kid who you know who played creepy well. So he was in, you know, he was in here. I believe he had a run on Full House or something too in the '80s. Um, just to throw some random trivia at you, but um, there's a couple of scenes that really stand out, and one is um, Lewis's wife. Uh, Lewis's wife's name is Rachel, played by Denise Crosby, and she ha- she tells him this story that's not even really all that connected to the main narrative, um, where she had a sister who had spinal meningitis or something. And was kind of like the, her family's dirty secret. And she recounts a scene where she, you know, she discusses how she was actually scared of her sister because of what the disease did to her body. And there's a scene where she walks in and, and sees her and her sister is just this nightmarish image. And it's, that's really like the creepy kind of center to that film. Um, you know, there, there's some fun to be had, some sadness and, you know, kind of devastation. But um, 
that is just like its central scare. And it is really, it's one of those things that as a kid, I, I want to say I was, I was what, 12 years old when I saw this. And that's one of those images that, you know, that the sister that you see when she, when you are closing your eyes at night and, uh, that, that kind of just cements it to me. There's, there's also a, um, a man who's killed early on in an accident who, um, keeps appearing to Lewis as a ghost and you are really like unsure of what his motives are. Um, but it's not really what it seems to be. So, um, there's a lot of kind of playing with those kind of roles and emotions and, and, uh, you know, your family betraying you or you betraying your family. And, um, it, it's really, it's really a terrific movie on a lot of different levels. Yeah. Um, you know, I saw this movie as I'm looking up to see if I can find the person I'm the, the actor, um, but I, I saw this as a kid. I want to say I probably saw Pet Cemetery two and three, and I could not tell uh, them apart right now in my memory oh, because yeah. I saw them as a kid. Yeah. Uh, but what's the one? This might not be the first one. Maybe you can help me. Uh, yeah. Where there's a scene where this guy just has like rabbits hanging, and he's just ripping their skin off. Oh, that might be Pet Cemetery two. two? I saw that, and that's. A completely different animal. <laughs> yeah. Well, see, in yeah. my brain, when I think of Pet uh-huh. Cemetery, I think of that scene, and it just yeah. haunts me even to this day. You know, I, I do remember the um, the lighting on the cat's eyes whenever it comes back, yeah. and every time it freaks uh-huh. out. Like I don't know how they do yeah. it, whether it's like a special effect or if they just shine light in uh-huh. a certain angle, or I, I don't really yeah. know how it works. But uh, yeah, that movie's wild, man. I, yeah. Again, I don't remember very well. I probably saw it younger than you than when you saw it, you know? Um, yeah. but, uh, yeah, uh, same people that uh, traumatized me with Chucky and, uh-huh. uh, the same people that, uh, I watched Friday the 13th with when my dad was just like, <laughs> I don't know what you're doing. Go. Um, yeah. uh-huh. uh, same people showed me pet cemetery and, uh, it's probably why I am the way I am today. So, <laughs> uh, I don't know, but, uh, yeah. So, uh, that's your number seven pet cemetery. Number seven. Boom. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, also, uh, fun fact, uh, directed by a woman, which yeah, we just, yeah, Mary don't, Lambert yeah, we just don't see yeah. enough of, uh, yeah. and so that, and, that's, and at the time, I'm sorry to interrupt at the time that was almost unheard of too. Oh yeah. So it, yeah, yeah, yeah. In, in the eighties, that was something, you know, even that, that didn't happen in, you know, geez, um, see, there was that in 89 and then Catherine Bigelow did point break in 92. Like there were. But other than that, there were very few women making mainstream, you know, directing mainstream films. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. And, yeah. and those are kind of pioneers. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. Check out Pet Cemetery. That is Joe's number seven. My number seven uh, definitely takes us into a different place, but still follows kind of in my, uh, my, uh, the vein of the ones I've said kind of. Maybe. I don't know. You can be the judge. Um, it is, uh, I might say his name wrong. I pronounce it this way. I've heard it other ways, but Michael Henneke from 2007 uh-huh. is his remake of his own movie, Funny Games. And, uh, I only choose this one because I still, despite the fact that Criterion has released the first version, I've never uh-huh. seen it. But my understanding yep. is it's a shot for shot. And I actually have a reason for why I like this one. And it's more uh-huh. of like a subversive, um, or not subversive, but, uh, subtextual addition to the original precisely because yeah. it is an American remake of it. And uh, I've heard his name pronounced Michael Hanukkah. Uh, yeah. I like Hineke because 
I just hate the way that I don't know. I, I need to look it up and just see which way's yeah. right. And I forget because uh-huh. I've done that before. But anyways, yeah. I'm gonna continue calling him Michael Henneke. Um Michael Henneke is typically directing, you know, really slow burn, either dramas or thrillers or uh, things of that nature. You know, he does cachet. He did the white ribbon. He did, uh, I believe he did a more, I Mm -hmm. think I can't, I'm afraid I'm going to be wrong, but I mean, these are just either super sad or like, you know, like, I mean, he makes these movies that can be really heart wrenching and funny games is no exception. Uh, funny games, uh, follows a, uh, pretty wealthy, like well-to-do family, Anne and her husband, uh, George and their son, Georgie, uh, and they're going to their holiday home. And, um, you know, once they arrive at their holiday home, they are visited by a pair of polite and seemingly pleasant young men and armed with deceptively sweet smiles and some golf clubs. They proceed to terrorize and torture the tight knit clan, giving them until the next day to survive. And it's basically, um, just a, a big game for these two, uh, young men. The budget was 15 million. It only made it made less than half that back with seven million. I mean, this was a flop if there ever yeah. was one. And mm-hmm. I understand. I mean, I can't imagine why general public would like this movie, to be honest. Right. It's you know, it has there's a movie like The Strangers that would be way more appealing to the general public. Uh, mm-hmm. and this is I would consider this in kind of the home invasion vein because there are oh, people yeah. in the home and the owners don't want them there, you know. I mean, it's yeah. not like traditionally that, but I would put it in that. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I think the thing I love about it is Michael Haneke, uh, I've learned just watching his movies, doesn't do anything just because. I mean, this guy really has a vision and he is a he's an auteur to me, you know. Mm-hmm. And um, so whenever you when you watch funny games, my understanding with the original being how it is. I mean, you know, it's making, it's commenting on uh, materialism and capitalism, and it's, it's, uh, uh, you know, uh, commenting on the, uh, the distance between, you know, an upper class and poverty, and, and I mean, it's really dealing with a lot of these important kind of subte- these issues subtextually. But what I find yeah. fascinating is, ten years after the original, he decides to make his movie again. Okay. Yeah. And I don't know many people who've remade their own other than like Hitchcock. Okay. So, right. um, yeah. so he remakes his own and he makes it in America. So mm-hmm. this adds yet again another layer of not only dealing with materialism and capitalism and all of these things, but also adding America, which is what the epitome of materialism and capitalism based yes. on European mindsets and and mine but <laughs> like yeah. you know but you know we encompass we like we we are we create we are that like i don't know how yeah. to say that you know what i mean yeah and yeah. so it almost has a whole different commentary by mm-hmm. recreating the movie here and also this movie pissed me the fuck off the first time i saw <laughs> it you've seen this uh, oh yes i've okay. seen both yeah. so uh-huh. so it pissed me off because there's a point where the poor family and i mean the poor fam. I mean, they go through hell. And if you mm-hmm. think there's a happy ending to this, I'm just going to let you know if you haven't seen this, you will not be happy. Uh-huh. This is a heart wrencher yeah. that leaves your heart wrenched. And um, it's it's a difficult, difficult watch. It's it, again, ends kind of similarly to The Strangers. I, I'm actually drawing a lot of parallels here now. 
But yeah, yeah. Um, you know, the thing with funny games that pissed me off was uh, there's a scene where the family, you think they're going to, this is where it turns around, right? They're yeah. going to get a one up on these bad guys. And, uh, you know, one of the characters blows one of the brothers away and the other character grabs a remote to a TV in the room and breaking the fourth wall rewinds the movie we as viewers are watching so yeah. that he can stop her from getting the gun. And it's such a great commentary on, like, this is what you Americans want to see. This is yeah. what you, this is what horror films do. I refuse to give that to you. You need uh -huh. to accept the horror that you embrace mm -hmm. so willingly, right? Yeah. Um, and, and basically, he almost makes it. I don't want to say more realistic because all of the fourth wall breaking like that, you know, kind of yeah. gets rid of it. But it's very much like a har har. I mean, to the point of the main character turning back and looking straight into the camera at you, the viewer, and kind of yes. winking, just kind of like, I'm fucking with you, you know. And uh, but yeah, that comment on a lot of our horror movies kind of being wrapped up in a neat little bow. And this one's saying like, no, 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 this is what you asked for. You wanted yeah. this and we're going to watch these people have to go through it. It is not that enjoyable for a lot of people. Oh. I mean, it's a, it's a hard watch, but the, the yeah. subtextual element along with the just desperation of the protagonist, whenever, Oh my gosh, I can't believe I'm forgetting her name right now. I'm, Naomi Watts. Thank you so much. Yeah. Yeah. Naomi Watts. Uh, she's tied up in the living room. The two uh, bad guys, I'll call them. I don't know. The two yeah. young men, they leave for a bit. So she's trying to get up, but her hands are tied behind her back. She's kind of hogtied. So she kind of like is like kind of hopping a little bit and just trying to get um, to a point where she can, you know, find help. And this scene goes at least it has to be minimum two minutes. I'm going to say five minutes of yeah. no music and just her struggling to get from one end of the room to another and it is one of the most intense scenes that I've probably mentioned in any of the movies I've brought up. I mean, I was on the edge of my seat and nothing's happening, Joe. Yeah, <laughs> like yeah, nothing's yeah. happening, but like yeah. you are so afraid, like they're going to come back. They're going to like, you have to hurry, like go, go, go. And that kind of intensity is not an easy thing to create. So I have to give um, Michael Haneke uh, huge props for that. Uh, when I taught a controversy in American cinema class, actually our friend Sam Watermeyer I mentioned earlier uh, was in that class, I believe. And when we taught that, I used to do, uh, that was from, uh, I think something like 1965 to 1989 or something. But I would uh -huh. do outside of class, I would do optional screenings of stuff outside those years. And one of the movies I showed was Funny Games. And we broke it down uh -huh. with a handful of people that came voluntarily. Uh -huh. And uh, I mean, of course, right afterwards, they're just like, fuck man like why did you make us watch that you know because i'm showing them that i'm showing them man bites dog you know like i'm showing them like these oh. just heavy movies um yeah. but by the end of the conversation they were like man this is one of my favorites you know and the faculty member that was working with me on that class uh uh this is one of her favorites i mean i, I can't stress enough go check out funny games i can't promise it's going to be entertaining but i promise yeah. it will be unlike anything well Again, The Strangers is a close comparison, but it's different than that. And I think I can yeah. safely say that this is unlike anything you've probably seen. So, oh, um, yeah, uh, that's my number seven, Funny Games. Uh, Joe, if you have anything to say about it, I'd love to get your opinion. Like, how, how do you oh, feel oh, about I this movie? I have a lot to say about that. I'm, I'll probably have to cut it short. But, um, 
Yeah, so I saw the original totally by accident on a lark. It was weird. I woke up one night at 1 o'clock in the morning, and I it was one of those times where I'm just like, uh, I'm awake for a while. Let's turn the TV on. I turned the TV on, and IFC, the IFC channel was on, the independent film channel. Yeah. I don't. I very rarely watch that channel. I didn't even have the channel. I think it was a free preview or something, and it and it came on right at the beginning of Funny Games, the original one. Literally, it was like, you know, you know that 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 intro screen where it's like, you know, violence and you know, adult situations, whatever. Yeah. And so I'm sitting there watching it, you know, and I'm like, what the hell is this movie? I'd never heard of it. <laughs> And I sat up and watched the entire film, and like you said, I was pissed off. Um, but you're, but you, you completely hit it on the head. The things it's saying about kind of consumerist culture and mass media, and even fans of horror movies. Oh yeah, um, yeah. The, he, they, the, the villains, you know, the film break the fourth wall repeatedly. And there's, yeah, there's that moment where they're like, "Are, are we entertaining you? Are you entertained by this? Is this, you know?" And the answer is no. You're like, no, this is disturbing and terrible. And of course, that at that rewind moment, I almost turned it off. I was it's, like, to hell it, this it is incredibly infuriating. Yeah. But isn't, yeah. isn't that a testament to how good Henneke does at bringing uh-huh. you in? Like you said, you didn't ever watch that episode or that that channel. Uh-huh. You catch this yeah. thing. You're like, what the hell is this? But you end up watching the whole thing, and mind you, yeah. it's a slow burn. Like, like oh, not, yeah, there's slow. not yeah. a lot going on. It's mostly just this family struggling. That's the entire movie, and these two stupid mm-hmm. young men pissing you the fuck off. That's the whole movie. But yeah. there's something about yeah, yeah. it that is so engrossing, and that brings you oh. in. I mean, I just think I keep wanting to use the term "tour de force," but. <laughs> uh-huh. But it's, I mean, it's, but it really is. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it is a gem. It is an yeah. absolute hidden gem. And again, I totally understand why it was a flop because uh-huh. I just don't see a general public, I one, trying to get it, you know, but because, yeah. yeah. like you said, they say, like, are we entertaining you? You know, and, and that, that yeah. right there immediately tells you, like, oh, this is like they're commenting on, mm-hmm. at least in this version, you know, Americans yeah. Yeah. and how we, you know, perceive mm-hmm. horror. Um, yeah. And and you have to assume that Henneke knows we're going to say no, and he keeps right. going because he's not giving yeah. you anything to like. But part no. of it is when I'm finished with it, I sit there and I say I've never seen anything like that. <laughs> you know, like I've yes. never been yes. I've never been so infuriated. Uh-huh. Um, but you know, because I'll say this, and then I want you to get back to some of your comments because I'm all about talking about this movie. Yeah, but you know. Uh, for me, what I want in any movie is make me feel something. I'm mm-hmm. ready to take the ride with you. Every movie I watch, I don't care. I know I don't like the Fast and the Furious movies, but if mm-hmm. the new one came out and I watched it, say like the film app, you guys sent me a screener, I'm supposed to watch it. I'll yeah. watch it, and I'm going to give it the best shot I can. Yes, I'll have yeah. some preconceived ideas, but I'm going to sit down mm-hmm. on the couch. I'm going to turn it on, and I'm going to say, hey, here's I'm putting my hand out there. You just guide me. And I'm mm-hmm. like, I'm giving you every chance you got. And if that movie yeah. can't do that, I'm not going to force it. I'm not just going to say, oh, well, it's entertaining. If it's not right. entertaining to me, you're not bringing me along, you know? Yeah. And the thing is, Funny Games isn't really so much entertaining as it is. Mm. It's somehow, it's like walking through a genuinely terrifying haunted house 
and you can't yeah. see who's guiding you, but they're yeah. guiding you, and they are guiding you through literally the worst way to go. Yeah. <laughs> Yes. If there yeah. are multiple ways, they chose the hard level, but they're still guiding you. And and I never yeah. felt there was never a moment, dude. I'm with you with the remote. I take back what I was about yeah. to say. That almost made me shut it off. I that upset yeah. me. But now when I yeah. watch it, I love it. It's like yes, yeah. like bring it. Um, <laughs> but please continue. If you have more to yeah, say, no, please no. go for it. Yeah. No. Well. Well. When when the remake came out. Um, I was the only one in my circle of friends that had seen it. You know that we have there we have a um, kind of a group of of Indiana based critics, and you know we tend to or you know more or less be at the same screenings, and you know especially traditionally when we we're actually doing screenings at movie theaters. And we, um, I was really excited when it when this came out because none of them had seen it, and I had seen it, and I knew what was going to happen when they came out. And I believe, and they all had that same reaction. They're like, what the hell did I just see? And I was like, right, this is incredible, right? And they, um, I, I don't remember if they all loved it. I don't remember if Sam was there or not for that. I think he was. Um, There's at least, a, a, you know, there were at least a couple of us, you know, that were there. I think he was one of them. Um, But it was, it was amazing. And, and I actually, I actually got to interview Brady Corbett for this film. Um, He plays the the second of the two tormentors the the younger of the two the uh and and there's there and this is something we haven't even talked about there's this weird kind of at times adversarial relationship between the two of them between these two young men and um you know the the older one in in the remake is played by Michael Pitt mm-hmm. um and then and Brady Corbett is the younger of the two and um, I can't remember if they were supposed to be brothers or not. I think you reference them as brothers. Well, but, I, I think yeah. it's implied. They they yeah. say it at one point, but they also say a lot. <laughs> like it's yeah, almost like yeah. it's almost like the Joker in the Dark Knight, where he keeps yes. telling people the story of how he got the scars, but every time it's different. Um, yeah. they are completely unreliable tormentors. Like yeah, you have yeah. no idea what they're saying if it's true. You know, they're uh-huh. just like, no, seriously, just. Like this can all end, guys. Just all you have to do is oh. guess the number in my mind. Right. Yeah, go. yeah. And then I'll let you go. You know, and they just torment. Uh. They just torment and torment and torment. I'm gonna get off yeah. on it again, real quick, just so everybody knows. <laughs> Tim Roth is in this. Naomi Watts, Michael uh. Pitt, Brady Corbett. I mean, killer oh. cast. There's a little boy in it. Uh, I think his name's uh, Devin Gerhardt. Uh, and uh-huh. although there are other people, those are literally the five people through the majority of the movie, to yes. mind you. But go ahead. So, so you were watching it with yeah. people, and you had this whole experience. You were interviewing Brady Corbett. Yeah, yeah, and it was it was just it was very it was very interesting. I you know I got to to you know talk to him about you know the experience of being on it. Um, that that interview was actually somewhere in the Film Me Up archives. Uh, if if you wanted to look it up, um, you could. I don't know. Maybe we can link to it on Twitter or something. Yeah. Um, it's. I mean, it was. I mean, let's see. That came out in 2007, so that would have been. Uh, maybe it wasn't in. Maybe it's not in the film app. I think it is. I, <laughs> the film app didn't exist in 2007 when it came out. Um, but I'll I'll have to look it up. I, I may have been doing indie.com stuff. It may have been on there. But um, and if that's the case, it's lost to time. But um, anyway, I, I did interview him. Um, it, it was a pretty fun experience, um, and that. You know, like you said, that 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 just kind of 
strange unreliability. Um, you know, and the, the thing where he he just does these seemingly nonsensical things that he's just as you know he's playing games and it it starts with eggs right they show up and yep. ask to borrow eggs and then they drop them and break them um and you know it's like oh no i dropped and broke these eggs and and she's like oh it's okay here let me clean them up and then they're like waiting for her to give them more eggs you know and and she's like you want more eggs and she's like okay it's and it's like you're taking all my eggs and and that that's what kind of sparks the whole thing. And of course, you're finding out, you know, they're they're just escalating things, and, and it's just it's it's so just maddening, like you said. And um, it, it's it's a unique experience in, in cinema. I don't know if there's another film that you know you you reference the strangers, and thematically, it's pretty similar. But they're way this, less infuriating. One, they're way less. Yeah. Inf- they're they because they are almost cool like not cool as in you like them but more like oh look at those cool masks oh man like they're tormenting these people and it is very similar but they don't like this is a different ball game but i would say that's probably closest comparison i can think of Mm -hmm. but this is different continue though yeah yeah no yeah i mean that's that's really um as much as i had to say about it is yeah it's not it's not the traditional slasher where you have this anticipation of of someone being killed in a gruesome way it's it's unpleasant, uh, and and there and there's a scene we haven't even mentioned where they force Naomi the Naomi Watts character in in the remake anyway, um to to strip down to a bra and panties. Uh, yeah, that's and, right before the hog tie scene I was talking about. Yep. Yeah, yeah, and in a sense, you know, there you know with with American horror, I mean all horror, but um you know many many horror films anyway that that aspect of nudity right is is always meant to be titillating. And here, it's very much a you know it's it's very much an invasion of her, yeah. And you feel that you know more than, way way more than you do in almost any other horror film, right? Yeah. Um, where where it's it's not there's nothing you know arousing or titillating about it. It's it's very disturbing and very cruel, and and you can and you see the effects of that um, on the screen. And that, that's, that's a rare thing in horror also. Oh yeah. Yeah. And, and it, that is, thank you so much for bringing that up. Cause that's just another example of that kind of commentary on horror. And then the American remake kind of bring that American aspect into it. And, mm-hmm. you know, we have all of these movies, even into the nineties where you always have that scene of, you know, the girl getting undressed and taking a shower, this brief, like completely mm-hmm. nonsense scene or, Two people right. banging in the back of a car, and you get a little mm-hmm. like you you get a little nip action or whatever you know, like right. whatever's happening. Uh-huh. Uh, but yeah, that that is so spot on. Like this one, when 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 they make her do that, her face and like the tears, how she's not actively crying, but she can't hold the tears back from falling down her face, mm-hmm. and her, she's kind of shaking. If I remember correctly, at least that's how yeah. it looks in my oh, yeah. brain, and um, yeah. she's just humiliated and. And it, again, it like and the whole time they're tormenting her with like, like oh you need to you need to eat more you need to put some meat on those yes. bones or like I don't know if that's exactly yeah. what they say but they're saying things like that. Yeah, so they, not, they may have been calling her fat even. You know. Yeah, like, yeah, it might have been the opposite. Like don't eat as much or yeah. whatever it is. Which anybody uh, who knows Naomi Watts knows she's not fat. So right. like, you know they're just tormenting her. I mean they're just yeah. they're just humiliating her and it's not fun. I mean it'd be like. You know, uh, them just saying like, eh, well, why don't you just pee your pants right now? You know, it's just like yeah. that's just humiliating. You know what I mean? Right. 
Yeah. And I don't know. I, uh, Joe, we're, I want to go ahead and move on, though, just because of time, <laughs> because I feel we'll like like we need to do an entire episode on funny games. I like uh-huh. want to I want to do funny games versus funny games and I'll watch the original. and We can just yeah. break uh-huh. them down. I don't care. We'll do a little mini yeah. session uh, on it. But uh-huh. I want to get to your number six, if that's all right with you. What's your number yeah. six? Well, uh, the, the the good thing about this is that we can have a, a relatively short discussion about my number six because we've already covered it uh, as one of yours. My number six is uh, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Very nice. So, so I will. Um, I'll. I'm going to bring up I, now. You know, once you said this, I the, I have two stories in mind. Two very brief. Uh, well, two things to talk about anyway. Um, the first um, is that my daughter um, is 12 years old. And we, um, I showed her, she's a very, very much a horror fan. Um, and I showed her the Texas Chainsaw Massacre and, um, we watched, um, we watched it about, I don't know, two years ago, maybe. And we got all the way through the movie and the movie ended. And she looked at me and said, dad, that wasn't even scary. (laughs) Yep. And, And I was like, what? She's like, I didn't think that was scary at all. And I was like, what are you talking about? <laughs> I was like, that's one of the scariest movies ever made. And she's like, no, nah, not, not so much. Um, but, you know, I mean, and, and that maybe speaks to what, you know, to a kind of a generation gap, right? Uh, you know, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre has been, you know, aped as as many horror films of its time. You know, kind of those those seminal horror films are are aped and, you know, elements of it are taken and, and reused and, you know, ripped off. And so it, it waters down for, you know, future generations sometimes. Um, I did have to um, become um, horror movie dad and I had to break out the big guns. I'm not going to tell you just yet what film I, I showed oh. her that had her crying and begging me to turn it off because it's one of my um, five through one. It's one of those films. Ooh, okay. So okay. I'll, I'll bring it back up when that could be my teaser for the, for the next episode. I'll, wow. I'll tell you when that was, um, what the other a good thing I cliffhanger. Say, <laughs> yeah. And, and it's one heck of a film. And, and she, um, we got to a certain point at this film and she says, dad, turn it off, please turn it off. Um, uh, again, from the girl who, who called the Texas chainsaw massacre, not scary. Um, yeah. So, um, so yeah, that, that's a good teaser for you. The other thing I wanted to mention is, Texas Chainsaw Massacre has had a lot of a lot of sequels and a lot of and remakes and then remakes from the sequels and or I mean sequels from the remakes and you know it's it's been just done to death. But I'm not sure if you've seen the more recent version of Texas, which is called Texas Chainsaw. I believe it was, it was done in 3D. Um, it was Texas Chainsaw 3D in the theaters but is now just Texas Chainsaw. Um, it stars Alexandra Daddario, who was in, uh, um, she was in, uh, what was the, the uh, detective show on HBO a couple of, she had a very famous, uh, True, detective? Was a True Detective. Yeah. She was in that, um, the, the, the black haired girl in that she was in San Andreas with the rock. She played the rock's daughter. She was in Baywatch. Um, she was in a, a pretty good horror film from this year called we summon the darkness. Um, but Texas Chainsaw was is really kind of a direct sequel to the original, and you know these other ones. You know, there's a lot. Of the you know the Jessica Biel remake, and then there was a, like a prequel to that, and then you know, and those are mostly terrible. But this one was actually really a good movie. Um, if you've not seen it, I would recommend it. 
And I don't, there's, I have like this depraved dream ending to this movie that doesn't really happen, but I really, really wish it happened. Um, <laughs> I, I'll, I don't know. We're going to have to like make that bonus content or something to talk about it. We'll have to do like a, a watch along or something with that film. Oh my um, God. This sounds so fun. Yeah. It is, and it's, and it's, I, it's just so off the wall and whacked out. You know, people will probably think I'm, I'm completely insane and I might be, but, um, that, that movie is really pretty good. Um, and it, it's a completely new take on, on the Leatherface kind of mythos. And essentially, um, Alexandra Daddario plays the descendant to that family. And, you know, they were all presumably killed, you know, after the events, the first one, the police raid the place and, and they die in a hail of gunfire. And years later, um, this character's grandmother dies and she finds out she has this inheritance, which turns out to be this house rebuilt into like this mansion. So she goes into the house and she finds that, um, Leatherface is still alive living in the basement of this house and is her family. And it's her, like is her last surviving relative. And of course he, you know, she, she discovers this by accident and it turns into this, you know, he, this rampage and he, you know, he's trying to murder her, you know, um, he's chasing after her the whole film. Um, there's a really fun twist to it. And like I said, I have this kind of in my mind is the alternate ending to this film that didn't happen that I so wish happened. Um, but it's, it's very watchable. And, and it was actually, um, you know, I showed it to my daughter. She actually thought it was superior to the original. I, I wouldn't go that far, but it's a very good follow-up. Uh, as, as far as those go. So uh, huh. I, I'm, it doesn't sound like you've seen that one, but I haven't. No, uh, no, I haven't. I have, it, I've seen the real, Jessica Biel one. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, that one is, you know, I mean, that one is what it is, you know, it's, but, um, but yeah, this one was, um, is, is a direct sequel to the original, not, not that remake, the, yeah. you know, the original, and they, they reference the stuff that happened in the original one. I think if, you know, there, there's a distinction where you, you can, you see that it's, you know, not the remake that they're referencing. Um, so it, yeah, very, very much worth seeing. Um, but yeah, but you know, modern, you know, classic is the, you know, that the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre. That's my, that's my number six. Um, awesome. Like I, said, I, didn't, I didn't need to talk about it since we talked about it so much before. <laughs> sure. Yeah, no, that's of course, you know, I love that choice. Great choice. Um, my number six, if I had to guess my number six will probably come up again. Uh, but we'll see. I don't know. I don't know you well enough to know, but I'm, uh, you know, you, you might, you might have chosen, uh, the sequel to this in its place. Uh, yep. but my number six is Wes Craven's 1984, a nightmare on Elm street. Uh-huh. And, um, you know, we, I, again, I don't really need to read a synopsis to this. We all know that this is the, mm-hmm. the first, uh, Freddy Krueger story. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, you have, uh, Nancy who is, uh, Heather Langenkamp. Um, Heather, if you're listening to this, I want to interview you, so you should probably come on here. Anyways, so, uh, (laughs) um, I mean, what, like, what do we even say about this movie? You know, I, I, I find this movie genuinely creepy. Okay. Uh I'm not going to say I'm like scared so much as like the scene where, uh, the character is being drugged across the ceiling and slashed open in her dreams. That's manifesting in reality. That is a terrifying scene. And, expertly done in my opinion for a movie yes. that's budget was 1.8 million and it i mean mm-hmm. of course you know it uh, grossed 25 million worldwide when it came out 
of course it's successful, but you know, this franchise would go on to be a staple in horror. You know what I mean? So, yeah. uh, you know, 25 million posh, you know, like, you know, it's gonna, right. uh, it's gonna make billions of dollars if I had to guess, uh, later, but, um, you know, so it was a, a pretty, a pretty modest movie at the time and has, has grown. Uh, but anyways, like the scene where she's being drugged across the ceiling, terrifying. Uh, it's really fun to see Johnny Depp get sucked into a bed and have like a gusher yes. of blood. And, uh-huh. um, you know, uh, the, the scene that a lot of people laugh at, and I think is genuinely unsettling is when I believe it's Nancy. It might actually know. I think it's one of her peers, uh, but she goes outside of her house in the dream. She goes to this alley and you see Freddie coming and his arms are like accordions, you know, yeah. and he's just like running really like almost ape like or really weird. Like it's just maybe yeah. he's running normal, but just his arms are so long. They look weird. Like yeah. that whole dream is fucking mm-hmm. bonkers, dude. Like that shit yeah. freaks me out a little bit just because like I can't wrap my brain around it. It's such right. a bizarre situation uh the the classic uh telephone with the tongue you know yes. you have the classic bathtub scene with the claws um i mean what a fucking dark movie this uh you know this pedophile and and child killer uh mm-hmm. and parents basically burn him alive i mean people don't mm-hmm. think about the history of freddy krueger but when you start thinking about what happened to him that's yeah. fucked up you know like Uh, I don't know. And then you also get Wes Craven doing something that he does, I would say, on this element even better in Scream. But you have Freddy Krueger, which is kind of a close quarters uh, villain. You know, like whenever he first appears in reality, he's chasing her within one room. You know, I mean, and and I think that's like really intense when I watch that because he's so close to getting her, you know. Um, yes. And of course, you know, the the later films, we talked about Dream Warriors last time. I love that movie. Mm-hmm. And that's more of like the fun side. That movie doesn't scare me at all, but it's awesome. Yeah. You know, like I love that yeah. movie. Uh, I, I, I have an affinity, much like your fr- Friday the 13th, I have an affinity for the sixth uh, um, Nightmare on Elm Street, which I think is uh-huh. actually so bad it's bad. I mean, it's really like, <laughs> I really think it's Fred, just Freddy's awful. dead is what you're talking about, right? What is it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Freddy's dead. Uh, yeah, we're at the end. They shove a dynamite stick in him and blow him up. Uh, yes. Yeah, but the the uh, classic, um, uh, the kid that has the um, the earpieces. The hearing aid. The hearing aid, thank you. Yeah. But they take a, uh, what do you call the cotton? Q-tips. Q-tips. Yeah. My God, my yeah, brain yeah. is. Cotton swab, a Q-tip, yeah. Anyways, um, uh-huh. but uh, they take the Q-tips, and of course, you know, in Fred in the dream, Freddy has this like giant Q-tip that's going all the way through the kid's head, or like he kills some one kid in a video game. I mean, like those are pretty comical and pretty awesome. Uh, but this movie has some genuinely terrifying shit in it, and uh, that's my number six. Um, yeah. yeah. I yeah I I do I love I love that movie. Um, I. You know, I I did mention my my criteria was I only chose. Hold on, hold on just a second. I'm gonna have to. My dogs are barking. Sorry, another edit moment. <laughs> no, it's okay. In these edits, I can't wait to put like the Jeopardy theme or like elevator music or something. Like just like this really short. 
um, yeah. thing. Anyways, uh, it, yeah, so uh, Nightmare on Elm Street. It was, I mean, there was not, nothing like that, again, when it came out. Um, you know, the slashers were, you know, were definitely a thing. Jason was an established thing. You know, Michael Myers was an established thing. There were a million one-off copycats. But there was nothing like Freddy that was, you know, had that that kind of inner supernatural element, but this kind of the the intimacy of that being in your dream and the power he had in the dream. Um, it was, yeah, it, it was really something that has it, it gave him a level of control that no other, you know, horror villain really had. And you know, you mentioned a couple of those scenes that were just, just absolutely timeless. This, this stretching arm is amazing. Um, people like to complain about the, the ending to that movie, but it really works to me in the context of, you know, what the film is and what it's about. Um, yeah. So, um, it, it, yeah, it's, it's really just a, a an amazing, amazing film. It, it actually launched new line cinema. If, if that movie didn't, you know, pan out new line cinema would not have been a thing Yeah, and any number of films would have never been made. Um, but it wasn't, um, it was, a, you know, no, this was a runaway hit. Um, I actually saw it first run in the drive-in, um, when I was a kid in 1984. Um, and there is, if you've not seen a documentary, I cannot recommend enough, um, called never sleep again. And it is a comprehensive, making of every one of the nightmare films. And I, I think it's something like eight hours long or something altogether. I, and I actually have a copy of it. It is amazing. They get most of the principal actors from each film. Um, they go through the making of the film, the, even the scripting of it. Um, I mean, I, I'm, I'm talking like they get Wes Craven, they get Bob Shea, they get Robert England, they get really most of the cast of every film, um, Johnny Depp is not in it, um, obviously, but pretty much everyone else is in it from the original cast. Um, it is an amazing, I mean, I sat and watched it in a day, um, and it is six to eight hours long. And it, it was just like one of those things I could not stop watching it. Yeah. Um, there's another one about the sequel. Um, they, they actually cover the sequel in that obviously, but, um, there's one called scream queen that I just watched this year, um, that goes over just a second film, but um, yeah, the, the Nightmare franchise is, is incredible. Where it goes and it turns, it goes very '80s very fast. Um, but that that original one is just, yeah, you you can't, you know, it, it's really tough to to duplicate, you know, what that is to to horror and, um, it, it it's really even tough to, other than the kind of the the comedic element of it. There's really not that much that you know. There haven't been any innovations like that to the degree of that film even since really um, it, it's really an important, you know, film as, as far as horror goes. So yeah. Um, yeah. I, I can't recommend it enough as well. So, well, really great time. So we're going to go ahead and close <laughs> up this segment then. Uh, but for the time being, we are already running pretty long, but you know, yeah. I feel like this is going to be a trend. So get ready. Um, yeah. Anyways, this is our six through 10 and our top 15 favorite horror movies. Uh, we hope that you're enjoying this. We did our 11 through 15 on episode one from last week. So please go check that out wherever you check out uh, podcasts. Um, and I will be right back with you in just a moment. Just take it easy. Just relax. <laughs> Welcome 
Wow, up to this point, we have re revealed our back 10, so six through 15. Next week, we're gonna be doing our top five. And boy, are those going to be great choices. We hope you guys enjoy them. Like I said, after our third episode, we're gonna be focusing on you know more traditional episodes, what you can expect from us here at Medium Cool, a movie podcast. Uh, we're gonna be doing some fun stuff, partnering up with the filmyap.com. Uh, Go check them out, like I said. Also, please get a hold of us on social media, like I said up top. You know, Medium Cool Pod on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. You can also mediumcoolpod at gmail.com. Email us, it'd be awesome. Um, yeah, we're just like super hyped. We love doing this. This has been nothing but an absolute pleasure. I got to talk to, you know, just this legendary hardcore band doing this. I got to talk to these filmmakers. I get to hang out with Joe, which is just a complete gift. I mean, this has been so fun so far. And your uh, feedback thus far has been so wonderful on our first episode and bonus content. I mean, you guys have been really supportive and awesome. We just hope that this medium cool community grows. Um, that's about all I have for this. Come uh, next episode, it's just our top one through five. That's all we're doing. No interviews, no extra stuff. It's just the list, and we're going to take our time with it. So definitely come check that out. And until then, good night, good luck, take it easy. I'll see you then. <laughs>